Patrick, you can start it. Yeah! I got rhythm. I got music. I got my gal who could ask for anything more. I got Daisy. I got in green pastures. I got my gal who could ask for anything more. Old man trouble. I don't mind him. You won't find him round my door. No. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I'm Patrick Rapol. Oh, and I'm Jim Laskowski. It's true. Ladies and gentlemen, get ready for one really big show. I am honored to present to you one of the smartest film critics I've ever heard. He's the host and producer of the Bad Mother Film Show on WHPK in Chicago. He's also a screenwriter, a lecturer, co-founder of the Black Harvest Film Festival at the Gene Siskel Center, and of course, a member of the Chicago Film Critics Association. Very excited to have Mr. Sergio Mims with us today. Welcome. Hello, everyone. Hello. How you doing? Great. Um, thank you so much uh, for being on the show. I also should add that I'm also one of the um, major contributors to Shadow and Act on IndieWire.com. Ah, yes. And uh, I just, you know, uh, one of the things I do every Sunday is do the box office reports, weekend box office report. And uh, actually, the biggest news, I think, was this Bollywood film that cracked the top ten. Hmm. And uh, it's the biggest opening for any Bollywood film in North America. Wow. It's called Jerum 3. <laughs> it's the third of a series of Jerum films, partly shot in Chicago. Oh, interesting. Um, I, I posted the trailer. You'll see, I don't know when they shot it. Maybe it had to have been, maybe it could have been earlier this year, but you see North Michigan Avenue, Lower Wacker Drive, City Hall. It's it's something like a part magic fantasy movie and heist film. Wow. And of course, since it's a Bollywood movie, there are a ton of musical numbers in it. No way! But I wouldn't have thought that. But the movie, <laughs> uh, right, surprise, but the movie made just over 3.3 million. Hmm. And, and, and it's only in just over 230 mo- uh, theaters. Screens. Yeah, I know that there's Which a... A theater in Niles up there, like that I always drive past because I well I used to anyway when I lived in the area that only uh-huh. showed Bollywood films and I always well, used to was, see the posters. Well, I, I mean I grew yeah, up in film. I grew up in Naperville. No, uh, yeah, I grew up in Naperville, which is you know a suburb of Chicago, and that is a very high uh, sort of Indian population. So the multiplex, uh, sort of the local thirty screen multiplex, it would always show one or two Bollywood movies at any given time. Um, it's uh, I'm it's. It's it's nice though that to see that it's actually sort of cracking the top ten. Bollywood's really interesting. We should probably one day yeah. cover it on the show. I agree. I'm all for that. Yeah, the film the film made the fourteen thousand dollars per screen, <sighs> which is bigger than bigger than Hobbit, bigger than Anchorman. It's the biggest uh, per screen average for any movie in weeks or months. It's amazing. Um, I'm dying to see it now. I'm yeah, really no dying kidding. to see the picture. Hmm. Well, I'm also uh, very excited today because we are tackling, speaking of musicals, our first musical director, Patrick. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I'm. If, if I had my druthers, uh, I guess I do have my druthers, so I, I guess I really can't complain. But I'm glad that we're finally getting around 
to someone who is known for musicals, um, Mr. Vincent Minnelli, one of my all-time favorite directors. Um, certainly, I, I'm a big fan of musicals, and I mean, we don't cover old Hollywood directors as much as we should on the show anyway, but... Um, it's really nice to uh, be able to cover someone like him, who's one of my favorites. Yeah, well, for me, it's actually a discovery, too. It's It almost reminds me of when we talked about Joseph Losey. I mean, obviously, uh, Minnelli's made a lot more renowned films, classic films, movies that obviously had a huge influence in you know pop culture in general. But The kind of movies that show up on AFI. Yes, yes exactly. Exactly. And I, I'm really glad because, and this could potentially be another director with the next couple of years that we want to do a part two on because he's mm-hmm. got such an extensive filmography with such a wide array of uh, different types of films, not just musicals. But uh, the two films we're going to be discussing are, in fact, musicals Meet Me in St. Louis and An American in Paris. Um, I accidentally watched An American Werewolf in Paris, but that's okay. Huh. <laughs> Uh, and I also want to thank the city of Grand Rapids for not letting the power go out on account of a major ice storm that hit the area. A lot of my favorite liquor stores were closed down, which made me very sad. Uh, but the weirdest thing I've, I saw was a downed power line and uh, a dead Elijah Wood sliding down the street. <laughs> I was about to say. I know. Sorry. Now let's, let's think that I'm sure. I'm sure that reference went right over the heads of many people. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. So, but Patrick, how have, you, how have you been, Patrick? I've been okay. Um, You've done some great work. i got to say I'm proud of your final 15-minute segment at the last episode. That's right. It's, it's been a while since you've actually been part of a, uh, a, a, part of an, a Director's Club podcast. I did that uh, bonus radio episode. Which was um, awesome. And then uh, I had Brian Tellerico on for the Miyazaki episode, uh, which you unfortunately had to miss. Did you get, actually get around to watching any Miyazaki? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, before? I'm... I had to bow out. I rewatched uh, my neighbor Totoro and Spirited Away. Um, I I really want to see The Wind Rises, obviously. So I don't know. If, I don't know when that's opening wide, or it's probably a January release, I would think. Uh, February. Oh, February. Okay. Yeah, but um, no, for sure. And uh, yeah, uh, I guess we sh- should mention the last fifteen minutes of last episode, which was just weird. Um, so I, I know for a fact some of some of you didn't like it. We got we got an email, but um, but uh, that was actually uh, a tribute to Tom Sharpling, whose uh, best show on WFMU just recently ended, um, which is I think one of the greatest uh, radio programs ever. I completely um, agree. So I'm gonna that miss was, that was like the one thing I look forward to every single week, and now yeah, it's he, not going to be there anymore. Tom Tom Sharpling, uh, he was, he's he's. He did a lot of weird things on his show. Oh, yeah. One of the one of the weirdest things he did towards the end was he started building these audio collages that were just uh, sort of these stream of consciousness bits of pop cultural ephemera and music um, that they'd be uh, Chuck Woolery doing a uh, doing like a paid programming for catheter like a catheter commercial. They'd be like just weird stuff. Uh, interview with Ricky Gervais just. Sound and, collages. Yeah, he'd do crazy sound collages. Um, and it would always be great because he wouldn't let you know they're coming. They would just sort of – you would just <laughs> yeah. you just sort of end up in them while you were listening to the show. And if you're like me and you mostly listen to it on a podcast, it often meant that you were on the bus for a good 15, 20 minutes 
or on the train or just taking public transportation listening to suicide or Frankie teardrop and some of the weirdest things you've ever heard and feeling like you're going insane. And it was, it was wonderful and delightful. So I did a little sound collage at the end of the last episode. And I wouldn't Uh, be surprised if I, I give that a shot too. It might be kind of fun just to do like a little mashup madness and just like our parody songs. If you don't dig it, just skip it. (laughs) (laughs) If we, if we let this show slowly get overtaken by avant-garde audio collages, Jim, <laughs> that's going to be a problem. That's true. No, I'm not going to do it like in the middle of the show. Um, Good this, God, I feel, no. like, I feel like this, is a, this episode is also a tribute to FM radio because we have Sergio. He's calling in via landline. Yeah. it's Well, uh, well no, I'm calling in through a computer. Okay. I... I uh, I thought you were using the the magic jack and a landline. Well, no, magic jack is calling in through the computer, okay. not a landline. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Look I into see. that because I think it's giving uh, you know some of these other like Skype and Vonage you know a run for their money. Apparently, according to the website that I checked out, looks interesting. It's like you it's, pl- plug it into your computer. You t- at the, yeah, you plug it into your computer and to call for free. Right. At any at any rate, it sounds like you're calling a, a radio show through a landline. Yeah, it does. That's kind of cool. Really. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, with that in mind, I I think we're ready to move on because I'm really excited to partake in this episode, and we got some. I can hear you rub your hands together. <laughs> I know. <I'm laughs> I know how excited you are. <laughs> Let's do it. The What We Watched segment. Sorry, guys. I'm a little bit drunk. There we go. What movies, what movies, what do we watch? The Rev or The Thing? Kindergarten Cop? House Sitter, Bowfinger, Blow or The Cell? I hope they serve beer and help. What movies, what movies, what do we watch? Wally or Marty Maniac and the stuff. Dreamscape and Terror Train, Ponyo and Mud. Yeah, there will be blood. The apartments, or three ninjas, and jingle all the way. After hours, broken flowers. Terminator 2, Judgment Day. What did we watch this week? Hmm. We usually like to ask the guests to go first, so let's let's continue that tradition. Sergio, uh, what have you been watching lately that you want to talk about? Well, I'll tell you. What I watched a few weeks ago, which I am sure I am one of the minorities. I am a minority. One of the minorities of opinions about this movie is <laughs> Inside Wellen Davis. And which I did not like. The film has been got nothing but rave reviews from everybody, every place by all the film critics. I did not care for the film at all. And actually, I'm not the only one. I did speak to one of the critics who also didn't like the picture. Actually, he also told me too he hated the film. And uh, for those of you out there listening and don't know, this is the latest Core Brothers movie. It's based on a it's based on a real life um, folk singer whose name still I cannot remember, 
And it's about this guy, Llewellyn Davis, who is a struggling folk singer. The movie takes place in early 60s, around 1962. And it doesn't really have a plot. It's just simply an episode in several days in the life of Llewellyn Davis. Hmm. And through that, we get to see his relationship with other people, his relationship with women, how he's been struggling in the business and so far has not really succeeded, how record companies have exploited him, and um, how he just makes a nuisance of himself. Now, here's the problem I have with the film. The main problem I have. I don't have a problem making a movie about a character who's unlikable. Yeah, I've been hearing that. The character is a major jerk. Major mm-hmm. jerk to everybody, everything. Um, but you still, I need something to grab onto. I need something that's going to make me care about him, be concerned about the journey he goes through. There's nothing like that in this picture. He's just a really irritating, annoying person. There's no character arc, by the way, in this film. Hmm. He's exactly the same by the end of the movie. He's still the same annoying jerk. And your, your attitude, at least my attitude at the end of the movie, was that, what was that all about? I wonder if uh, it's like taking a little bit from Serious Man, along with the music kind of component of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, and sort of making a more you know, bleak, melancholy kind of folk tale. And I heard a colleague and former guest of the show, Colin Suter, describe the movie as almost like listening to an album where it's song-driven song almost. Not necessarily like just, you know, music to music, but just, like you said, kind of episodic, and the character goes from one couch to another, one character to another. And there isn't, it isn't really driven by any sort of character arc or storyline, which can be frustrating, I would think, for some people. Uh, I think it would be frustrating for a lot of people. I, I Colin told me that, too, and I could see where he was coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, one problem, though, is that I don't think the music is that particularly good hmm. in the film. It's okay, but there's nothing, there's nothing in the movie that makes me want to say, wow, that was fantastic, except this stupid little comic song about Kennedy, <laughs> which is part of a, a gag plot line in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't think the music was even that particularly interesting. Um, what I suspect, and this is my own theory, this is me, I could be totally wrong, but I suspect the reason why critics love this film so much is because they see themselves as Llewellyn Davis. Hmm. In other How words... Here's this guy who, you know, he's writing. I mean, he's, he's trying to be, well, he's a singer, but somebody who's trying to be success in his field, which is a very tough field. He sees that morons who have less talent than he does are doing well and being accepted and making money, while someone like me is not, you know, and I don't get any respect and it's just life is just a struggle. That's why I'm so bitter. Mm-hmm. He sounds very resentful. And, right. And I, they, they see themselves. Somebody, one critic uh, made an analogy about sideways. 
the, mm. the uh, Alexander Payne movie. Mm-hmm. And he said that the reason why critics liked the movie so much is because people kind of, de- critics identified with um, Paul Giamatti's character. Here's this critic who's not a particularly nice person, who doesn't really have a lot of social skills, but this really beautiful woman falls in love with him. And they say, boy, that's like, film critics will look at it and say, you know, that's a fantasy. Mm-hmm. You know? Maybe one day a beautiful woman will look at me and see through my flaws and see that I'm a genius compared to all the other guys he's been with. This is you. 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 You seem to have a lot of hostility towards film critics. If that's the defining characteristic. Well, I should know. I hang around them all the time. Certainly. <laughs> Certainly. Well, that's interesting because, like, I, 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 I sort mean, of you know subscribe. What? I subscribe to that theory. Don't get me wrong. Wait a minute. Don't get me wrong. It sounds like I'm a. You know, I, I, I'm. I'm being facetious. I am yes. being facetious, but, but, I really, I'm being serious. I, I think a, a, a lot of critics look at Llewellyn Davis' character and somehow identify with him. Hmm. I think, really believe that. You think critics and I could, are... I could be totally wrong, but I really believe that. You think critics are just more, they're more apt to identify with storylines that involve people who are it's about uh, storylines about artistic integrity and sort of about high-minded the way that critics throughout the year have to watch i mean the kind of critics who review a lot of movies and they just have to watch all this kind of studio pablum all the time and they want their readers to always you know to be the to watch all these great art films and everything but they end up uh, but they end up having well, to. It's, it's not view. so much. It's not so much trying to get people to watch them. Is that you're hitting on a point? Is that I, I should know? You, you go to movies all the time, and you just see the same crap, the same CGI crap stuff all the time. And after a while, when something comes along that's different, it's just a small, simple picture. You want to maybe overpraise it more than one that's really worth, hmm. simply because it's different. You know, I don't know how you guys are, but I have said this before, and I have said this again. I think the greatest decade for filmmaking was in the 1970s. Oh, yeah. And I you look that. at, you know, I was, I remember, hey, I've been around for a long time. And... I look at those movies and said the range of movies that were coming out at that time in the 1970s was absolutely extraordinary. Not even compared to what you see today. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that people at that time weren't going to movies. Hmm. Movie attendance had really dropped off. So the studio said, we'll just try anything. We'll try anything. I you know, I would also you say that they bring an audience to go see it. Mm-hmm. I but I, I would also say that the seventies were also a time when th- things that were different, just for being different, would end up being overpraised and like that whole new Hollywood. There's a lot of uh, sort of films that are are very you know they're very different and they're very aggressive and they are very countercultural. You know, like I'm not. I'm not going to say. I'm never going to say. Easy Rider is one of the greatest films ever made. It you know, not. I mean, I know that's no, not seventies. That's right. sixty-nine. But it's like, I, it almost seemed that seems to me a, a decade that a lot of what you're describing, or as where people overpraise things. No, but because then I can also think. Happened. I can also think of like with studio films. I could think of Deliverance. I could think of the Cowboys. I could think of the whole Black Sportation films that came out during that era. 
I could think of, uh, hey, you can go back to Peter Wars, came back in the 1970s. I could think of Saucerer. I could think of The Exorcist. I can think of um, French Connection and French Connection 2, which I think is maybe better. I can think of a lot of movies that were just studio films that even today would not be made. Deliverance was a studio movie made by Warner Brothers based on a best-selling novel. You, you would not make a film like that today. Yeah, uh, and I even think of just Coppola putting out Godfather 2 and Conversation in the same right. year. The same year. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Year. I mean, I, I do subscribe to that theory, though, of like... Uh, projecting a lot you know as a viewer i think a lot of people will have a tendency to place themselves especially if they're spending so much time with a character on screen like uh i'm assuming you follow Llewellyn davis throughout the whole movie like he's probably in every scene and i'm sure there's a psychological tendency to put yourself in the character's position and maybe you're pretty accurate in thinking that like critics might have a tendency to gravitate towards a movie like this because they can identify with it so much. I don't know if that necessarily makes it bad, but <laughs> No, no, I'm not saying that's bad. Hey, everybody does that. Right. Everybody does that. What makes a film popular? You make a film popular because you can relate to it. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you why do you get into a character? Because somehow I had a conversation with someone recently who just absolutely, absolutely loves August Osage County. She is just insane about that picture. And she told me, she said, I can see my family in that movie. Sure. You know, I see my family, and I just talked to her a few days ago. She says, I can really relate to it because I see my family. You know, I've had situations like that where I've gone off and damn near almost killed somebody in my family. <laughs> but, yeah, people identify with what you know what you can relate to. You know, I I look at movies, I do it. You know, gee, I relate to that character, I don't relate to that character. Maybe I didn't relate to Llewellyn Lewis. Mm-hmm. It could be a point. He's a hard character to get to know. He's a hard character to warm to. That's intentional. Can that I ask you? Uh, can, can I ask you a question, Sergio? About uh, going yeah. back to what you said about sort of critics having to see a bunch of crap all year, and then maybe getting uh, a little overzealous um, when they see something that's just a little different. Um, the other, the flip side of that is, if you are the kind of film critic who sees a lot of movies, you're not going to be. If there is a movie that is, you know, if there are movies that are genuinely different and they actually do things that you've never seen happen before, that's the sort of thing that uh, you're going to be able to detect because you aren't going to be able to be fooled by say whatever, you know, like, like the kind of people who are just, they will only watch Hollywood movies, but then they also saw Juno and to them, Juno is the craziest, most artsy kind of movie they ever saw. Um, whereas <laughs> oh, it's yeah. a very well-worn oh, yeah, territory. Yeah, sure. It does sure. inside, does inside Llewellyn Davis. Is that a movie unlike you've ever seen? Are, are there not comparison? And is that not in itself, Sort of oh, sure. Phrasing. I'm sure there are comparisons. You mentioned, you know, uh, a serious man. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned, in a, it, 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 it goes in a completely different way, is um, Oh Brother, We're Out Thou, which is a film I love. Mm-hmm. I love Oh Brother, We're Out Thou. Uh, but then again, it takes a completely different tact. It's a different story. It's very funny. The characters are very engaging. You're more interested in that, in that story. Um, but yeah, there are many films like that. Um, I'm trying to think of some off the top of my head right now. But yeah, it's it's not new, a film like that. Okay, I'll give you an example. I'll give you a perfect example. 
I'll give you a perfect example of a movie like that. A film you guys have probably never heard of called Who is Harry Kellerman and Why He's Saying These Awful Things About Me. <laughs> no. You ever heard of it's, a Dustin, it's a Dustin Hoffman movie. Hmm. Around 1970, 1971, he made this picture. That's the name of the film. Who is Harry Kellerman and Why He's Saying These Awful Things About Me? It's coming out on DVD, surprisingly. I think it was released by Paramount, but it's coming out next month, I think. Wow. Oddly. And it's about a folk singer who, um, a kind of a very abrasive guy, who finds out that there's this guy, Harry Kellerman, who is making his life miserable. Gee, that kind of sounds familiar. Um, and then there's a twist that you can probably see coming. But that's a movie that was made over 40 years ago. Interesting. Well, which is in the same realm. Yeah. Well, it's possible. Knowing the Coen Brothers, they might have seen it and <laughs> took some inspiration. It's very from possible. It. Yeah. It's very. You know, look. Nothing is new. Nothing is original. You, you know, I was actually I was going to write a piece about this for Shadow and Nag. I think I still may. I'm not sure yet. But you know, there's a scene in Django. And you remember the scene in Django where uh, Leonardo DiCaprio gives that speech. Uh, at the dinner table, about why he's surprised that black people haven't risen up and have a slave rebellion and killed white people. He makes that speech, right, in the mm-hmm. movie. Well, Clark Gable makes a very similar speech in a movie he made called Band of Angels, directed by uh, Wild Walsh. And it's a 1957 movie where he, um, in a long... Uh, scene, you know, reveals his past life as a, as a slave trader. And he tells Yvonne DiCarlo, I'm surprised black people have not risen up and killed every one last one of us. And I said, gee, where did Tarantino get that idea from? <laughs> well, it's, again, it could be just the subconscious, uh, you know... Or it could be that Tarantino has seen a hell of a lot of movies. Well, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, would, I would say there's a, there's a little something different in noticing that things tend to repeat and that you know, nothing's new and nothing's original. And someone like no. Tarantino who makes his career yeah. out of repurposing and finding inspiration in those kinds of movies. Right. Right. Yeah, which would be interesting yeah. to get an argument from somebody who you know, finds Tarantino derivative in, in an annoying way. Like – Obviously, they they exist out there, but like most film buffs, tend to be like, "That's great! I'm glad that he referenced that obscure thing that I I've seen," you know. And whether that's pandering or not, he still makes great movies. Right, because like I said, nothing to do with not original. What kind of spin can you put on the material? Mm-hmm. You yeah. can't just absolutely copy it, or you can take it and use it for inspiration to do something else with it, to expose some other layer that wasn't explored in the movie wherever, wherever you got it from. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a very interesting take, because obviously we're, we're both very excited being huge Coen Brothers fans, and, uh, you know, tales of struggling musicians I tend to identify with, because I went through a period of doing that. Uh, so, I mean, I'm I'm fairly open-minded about it, and the fact that, like, I can see where you're coming from at the same time, like, oh my god, everybody is still praising the hell out of this. So, as I'm, it's one of those movies where I, I just, I have this feeling that my biases will win me over, and 
I'm sure the Coen brothers are still great storytellers. I'd be very interested to hear your take on that. I'd be very, very interested to hear your take on that. And by the way, you know, even the most original film, there's always there is a precedent. There's always something that came before it. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, Gravity. And I mentioned this to Eric Childress. Um, Everybody sees Gravity and they think, I've never seen a movie like this before. And I watched Gravity and I said, gee, this is marooned. <laughs> Gee, what's Maroon? Maroon is a 1969 Columbia movie with uh, Gene Hackman, directed by John Sturgis, about three astronauts who find themselves stranded out of, in outer space, and they have to wait and wait, and they have to make their way back to Earth. Gee, ooh, but uh, but okay, well, I've seen that before. But that's all. But I mean, that's that's incredibly subjective. When people say they haven't seen a movie like Gravity before, it's not that they haven't seen a story of a single person struggling to survive against harsh circumstances or even in space. What they mean is they haven't seen a movie with that visual language before. They haven't seen right. a a big budget like Hollywood special effects movie that is that stripped down. Like, there's mm-hmm. a lot about Gravity that is. Original, well, and, you know, I mean, so it's, so it depends Maroon. on how. It, well, yeah, well, no, but I'm saying Maroon was a Maroon. big, was a big budget road show. I mean, you had to buy a ticket in advance with an intermission in the middle, and you had to go see it. Now, if you, it's incredibly are you telling boring. Are, are you telling me the camera work in Maroon? Are you telling me that Maroon no, looks anything no, like Gravity? No. Okay. No, no, because remember, we're talking 1969. Exactly. 1969, at that time, you know, when you see Maroon, was considered cutting edge. Now, if you watch it today, you you laugh at it. <laughs> but at that time, if you're like looking at 2001, if you look at 2001, you're looking to go like, gee, I can, it, it's, it, I can see how they did that, you know, with, with the cutouts and things like that. But it, when 2001 came out, it was cutting edge. It was like, oh, my God, I've never seen anything like this before in my life. Mm-hmm. But technology changed, things change. What I'm saying is that it's not so much the technology, but the storyline, the premise. Nothing is original. You know, Certainly. it's just how you use it. it now, of course, you know, um, <laughs> I saw Maroon when I was a kid, and it put me to sleep. Yeah. But... Um, and just funny, just recently I was talking to a friend of mine who actually saw, it's on DVD, he actually, he remembers Maroon 2. He saw Gravity, and he saw Maroon 2, back to back. And uh, he was telling me, this was a few days ago, he said, God, is that movie born? I said, yeah. You know, you look at Gravity, Gravity is superior filmmaking. You know? I, 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 I um, think that's, that sort of thing, it tends to be just sort of what, kind of filter you're viewing things for because on the one end you're absolutely right in that you'll see the same stories repeated and you can never say oh movies never had this tone before and the more i watch old i mean even going back and watching vincent minnelli movies i've just i i saw things in like some came running with that i'm like oh my god that's where this comes from like there's a lot of but at the same time you could look at something that okay like look at the friday 13th series that's a movie where the plots are completely insignificant and every movie is just an excuse for teenagers to get murdered by some hulking, su- sometimes supernatural serial killer. Like, you could, I mean, you could look at the whole slasher subgenre and say, oh, yeah, all these movies are doing the same thing. But you could also look at every single individual movie and hyper focus on them and notice all of the weird things that makes each of them unique and different. I think it's just sort of a matter of how you choose to look at it. Oh, yeah, that's true, too. Yeah, absolutely true. And don't forget, when, when the first Friday the 13th came out, oh my God, I want to say 1980, 81, um, 
it was considered pretty original at the time um, in terms of the graphic violence and also in terms of just the stripped-down nature of the whole movie. There's this idea, I mean, it took people by storm when, when the first movie came out. Hmm. People had never seen anything like that before. And it was a movie that was practically made for no money, and this, Paramount had it. They didn't think it was going to do any kind of business. They kind of, like, almost wanted to throw it away. And it just took the country by storm. It took audiences by storm because they really hadn't seen anything like that before. No, sure. But at the same time, I'm sure there was also people in the theater who were going, hey, they're just, they're just doing Mario Bava. They, this is Giallo. This yes, is true. Giallo. <laughs> yes, they were like, doing Mario Bava. They were doing, well, you know, Psycho. They were doing a whole ki- all kinds yeah, of movies. Yeah. Right. It really but is. For, for that generation at the time, it was novel and new. Certainly. Certainly. Right. I mean, certainly that general. I mean, certainly the people who that movie was made for had teenagers who came, went out and drove to see that movie had never seen anything like it. Right. I mean, unless they were happen to be old enough to also see. I mean, even Halloween. That's not quite the same because that's not graphic violence. That's not. Uh, it's not the same thing. But yeah, I don't know that. it came from Halloween, and you know, it's like I mentioned myself. But you know, when I first saw Star Wars when it came out, that's why it always baffled me how that film took off with people. Because when I saw the film, my first reaction was, yeah, that's like that Flash Gordon stuff you see on TV when I was a kid. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it was like Flash Gordon. It's got better special effects, but it's like Flash Gordon. Every, every Sunday and morning, they would show Flash Gordon serials. And I go like, and then later when the film just took off in its own, became this life and this, this, this fighting film for a generation, I was like, Really? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm like, I'm in that age bracket that should have been like a Star Wars freak, but for some reason, I probably brought this up a couple of times on the show, but I saw Last Starfighter uh, bef- <laughs> before Star Wars, and I was like, oh my god, this movie, you know, should be huge. It's so inventive and clever and cool, and it, you know, like I had no idea the the kinds of inspirations that obviously you know played a part with that entire movie. I just saw it kind of with fresh eyes before Star Wars. And so when I saw Star Wars, I was like, eh, this is no last Starfighter. <laughs> yeah. Which is weird. Yeah. You know, it also depends on the order of when you watch things and what age you're at. Well, yeah. Some, some, I, I, always, I always say this because I heard somebody once say it, and it's true, that the films that are most important to the films you grew up watching are the films that are most important to you. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. And, you know, so whatever films had an impact on you as a kid or when you were growing up, like for me, I guess it was James Bond movies, mm. you know, because that's when my father would take me to see Thunderball and On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And, you know, You Only Live Twice. And those films absolutely blew me away. I said, like, Wow. This guy, he can do all this kind of stuff, and every time he walks in a room, there's a naked woman waiting for him, <laughs> and oh my God, and he drives fast cars, and he, drives, he goes all around the world, and a lot of stuff gets blown up. My God, you know. Or World War II films. My father loved World War, you know, go see World War II films and Westerns. Yeah. My father was a big Western guy, and he saw every Western that was ever made. So, you know, any time a Western came out, I would go with my father. It didn't matter. You know, so it, Westerns have always had a huge, 
huge importance to me because I grew up really learning to love that genre and the look and the feel of Western movies, which is so sad, which they have fallen so much out of favor. Mm -hmm. To me, a sad thing. Because I, I think they're tr- it's a it's a great genre, great I, genre. Of, of I agree. I I uh, thinking thinking back. I actually I wonder if watching obsessively on VHS over and over again, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Not only I, I've talked about this before on a previous episode where we talked about the big in movies that sort of influenced the cinephiles. Um, I and I think I think that it's definitely the movie that got me into horror films. Even though it's not a traditional horror film, it it's definitely the the Indiana Jones movie that most uh, sort of revels in all the grotesquerie and the gruesomeness and all the violence and the horrors uh, of of the story. But I wonder if that opening also didn't prime me to be really into musicals as well, because <laughs> now. Now I, because now I'm a huge Busby Berkeley fan, and every time I watch, uh-huh. you know, like Gold Diggers of 1933 or uh, Footlight Parade or anything like that, in the back of my head, I'm like, oh yeah, this is anything goes. This is this is where they got it. <laughs> this is where anything goes came from. That moment in the <laughs> at the beginning of that in, of a uh, Temple of Doom. I love those light bulb moments where you watch something. And, and, like, and, yeah. and you you brought up something else too, because also like I said when I was a kid, they show movies on TV all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, channel 9, Channel 11. Channel 11 especially because Channel 11, back when it used to be good, Channel 11 used to show a lot of foreign movies. And I remember, and I told this recently to... Yeah, I did. I said this last week, uh, last week on my radio show with Eric Childress. This sounds hard to believe, right? But Roger Ebert had a series where he showed Amy Bergman films on Channel 11, <laughs> locally, and he would introduce the movies. And so that was the first time I ever saw Wild Strawberries mm-hmm. and Smiles of a Summer Night and The Magician and Persona. And I saw all these movies. And I went, wow, I have never seen these pictures before. And like I said on my show, when he showed the version Spring, my first reaction was that, Oh my God! That's the last house on the left. <laughs> right. It, that's, what, to, that's, where, that's where the story comes from. Yeah, it, it, yeah it's last house on the left. Yeah, um, um, it, I think I think it's good to to bring it to bring it back around to sort of what we were, we were talking about before. I think it's good to have those moments and to sort of see the broad history of film and to um, and to see what has influenced what. And obviously, that's a big part of this show. Um, as me and Jim have gone back and educated ourselves on so many of the filmmakers to sort of have those moments where we realize, oh, this is this was the inspiration for this, or oh, clearly this is where Guillermo del Toro comes from, or whoever you know, whatever modern filmmaker right. we like now. But um, I think uh, it's it's also good to make sure that you temper that with because uh, there is a you can take that too far and it, you can become cynical and you can say oh well this movie is just this movie and then like obviously you know you like you like gravity um, and you, mm-hmm. you see the merit in it you see the filmmaking prowess in it and everything but there's there could be someone else who could say oh they're just doing maroon and then just leave it at that and not see what makes that movie unique and I think right. <laughs> I think a good I think a I think part of being a cinephile is well, realizing well, that well, each each film is its own unique snowflake and has its and even the most crass, uh, you know, focus tested Hollywood pablum. Uh, it has its little idiosyncrasies 
Uh, I I remember I only just remember this recently because I was looking up Kevin Klein's filmography after learning that he played Errol Morris in a movie recently, and I got really excited because both Kevin Klein and Errol Morris really? are two of my two of my favorite actors. Yeah, huh. apparently he played in something about uh, uh, of Robin Hood. It's I I don't know exactly know what the movie. Maybe Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn. I'm sorry, not <laughs> Errol Morris. That's that would be that would be way different. Errol Flynn. I apologize, but I I. I I looked back uh, at his IMDb page and I saw that he played both uh, the Will Smith sidekick in Wild Wild West, but he also played the president for no reason. <laughs> like he also played Ulysses S. Grant. Oh, weird. He played both – like he did a Nettie Murphy thing where he just played both parts. And like that movie is nothing but let's throw a bunch of money on the screen and let's focus – and it's that movie is soulless. Ever, but even that movie has its own little idiosyncrasies and I think – uh, appreciating there them, even are, if- there, there are one or two. Aside from being woefully miscast and just being a, a bad picture, there are one or two moments of inspiration in that film, and I, I really put that on Barry Sonnenfeld. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's one of those pictures that it was one of those misbegotten ideas that misbegotten ideas that was a bad idea from the very beginning, right. from the very beginning, yeah. you know. And also someone who really didn't understand the TV show. Because if you grew up like me watching the TV show, you know that, well, this movie is nothing like the television show. Or didn't understand or didn't care. And that <laughs> movie always struck me right. as just trying to do Men in Black again in a different setting. To be- and right, and you're going for an audience who didn't remember the show. Right. right. It's the same thing with The Lone Ranger, which actually I liked. But... You know, uh, who remembers if you don't? Who remembers the Lone Ranger if you're under fifty years old? I'm definitely going to catch up with Lone Ranger because I keep hearing all these uh, defenders of it, and I'm a big Gore Verbinski fan in general. Well, you know, Eric Childers on my show Wednesday made said that mm. he said that now people are defending it. Yeah, the same people who put the film down. <laughs> and I remember Eric and I saw the film at the screening, and, and we were told before then by other people, oh, it's terrible. And we saw the picture, and both of us said, hey, you know what? That wasn't bad at all. Wow. You know, I don't understand what people are talking about. It's too expensive. <laughs> it's uh, Yeah, you, mm. you can see where maybe half of the, where the money went, not all of it. Um, you can see some things where they just went, too far because he had the money to do it, but it, 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 it didn't. They didn't have to do it. Um, but it still is. I don't think it's nowhere as horrible as not even remotely as horrible as some people claiming they are. And you're right. Now people turn around and say, you know what? It wasn't that bad after all. Yeah. I so think Jim had their nice out for it from the very well, beginning. That's. I mean, that's that's the problem with the. That's the problem when you mix. Uh, when you mix sort of the business side and the and just being a, a, a viewer is you can get too invested in oh I want this movie to succeed oh I want this movie to fail and you get you get caught right. up in hype nah. and you can end up you can end up overpraising something really dull like Pacific Rim or you could end up you know overhating something that was really not pretty harmless and and not that horrible like Lone Ranger <laughs> like. Yeah, right. everybody has right. You know, Guillermo del Toro has his hardcore fan base, and they're going to defend him and love him regardless what he puts out. 
right? And then there are there are filmmakers. This is the way I look at it, and and I, I try as hard as hard as I can to do this. Every film I see, I try to go with a clean slate. You know, I even though I'm the kind of person I like to know everything about the background of a movie. That's me. Most critics don't like to do that. I do. I like to know, you know, what happened behind the scenes. Even what camera did you use to shoot it on? Did you shoot on film? Did you shoot on digital? Uh, I'm that kind of guy. Okay, but still, when I see the picture, I go with a clean slate. Okay, even if it's a Michael Bay movie, <laughs> I said, okay, this is going to be the best Michael Bay movie ever. You which know. apparently I, has I, happened. I, I, which, yeah, which <laughs> happened this year, as a matter of fact. Right. But I tried, well, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. Okay. Uh, but as a matter of fact, it may have been better than, than, than what I think. I actually need to see it again. But the point about it is that I try as hard as I can not to go with any prejudice. Like, I got my knives out to tear apart this movie because I don't like the director, I don't like this, or they I already spent too much money. On the other hand, I try to go, if there's a, a, direct, a movie by a director I really, really like, I'm hoping, uh, of course, my expectations are high because he's done work that I like a lot, but if the movie is disappointing, I'm not going to try to defend it. Yeah. You know, it's like, that makes gee, sense. he blew it that time. He blew it. So, Jim, uh, what did you watch this week? You know, it's it's the most wonderful time of year. I don't know if you've heard that at all <laughs> in the uh, you know lexicon around the holiday season. but maybe, maybe a couple hundred times over the radio at the grocery store, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, um, like, you know, I, it's the reason why it is for all of us pretty much is – it's time to play catch up, and it's time to get excited about lists. In fact, in two weeks on January fifth is when Patrick and I are going to sit down alone, ooh, and uh, very reveal, sensual, yeah, and reveal our favorites of twenty thirteen. Um, I still have a lot to catch up on uh, now that I live in Grand Rapids. I don't have immediate access to like uh, Inside Llewellyn Davis and her yet, but American Hustle opened up here. And that made me happy, and uh, this is going to be a quicker uh, segment for me because uh, the, the three movies that I want to talk about are most likely going to be talked about again in two weeks. Uh, so I'm just going to be kind of quick. With American Hustle, uh, <laughs> it's funny, we were talking about, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing original and a lot of things are derivative these days. This is obviously O. Russell's Scorsese movie. Uh, and coming out around the same time that Scorsese makes another Scorsese crazy movie uh, with a lot of energy. And I I don't know. I've, I've pretty much loved everything, every single David O. Russell movie. Uh, I think he's really great at making these kind of screwball comedies with dysfunctional families or some version of that. And he does it often without restraint. And he, like I said, he adopts the Scorsese style with a, a con man movie and that combination. I mean, right from the opening, I was sold on this and it's scene after scene of great characters doing impulsively crazy things and going out of control, dealing with consequences. It's just another superb ensemble of acting and it's a little over the top at times, but not like in an annoying way. It's got great dialogue. I don't know. I, I just think O'Russell's Russell's the real deal. I, 
get incredibly excited now whenever his his name is mentioned. Uh, so he's the he's the real deal, even when he's the fake Scorsese. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> and uh, Nebraska, uh, I was very happy to catch up with that because I'm a huge Alexander Payne movie. Wait, I'm a huge Alexander Payne fan, and uh, all the accolades that Bruce Stern has been getting, I think, are are um, absolutely justified. I this is an incredibly moving movie. It's very slow and simple. Uh, it definitely has the, the things you come to expect, like just the, the, the Americana portraits of family. And this one was very relatable, just like in terms of how you, you, everybody interacts when they haven't seen each other in a long time and they have really mundane conversations about traffic and how long it took you to get here. And like it, it all the, all the touches and attentions to detail that Payne has in all of his movies are a little bit more subdued here. And I just, I don't know, it's its a very simple story told beautifully with a lot of heart. And, of course, his sort of biting sense of humor that I just really, really um, adore. So, again, Nebraska probably be talked about a little bit more again, too. Uh, and 12 Years a Slave. Uh, I'm a huge Steve McQueen fan, and he, I think he's just one of the more interesting and emotionally confrontational filmmakers working today. Uh, I This is a hell of a movie. <laughs> There's a particular moment in the journey of the lead character after uh, he confronts uh, Paul Dano that might be one of the most uncomfortable scenes I've seen in a long time. It just lingers on and on to where I was like, having an insane visceral response to it. And I, again, I like that he's a filmmaker that doesn't hold back. And this time he's, you know, he tells us the story in kind of a conventional way. It's more of a traditional true story retelling, but he still has that tendency to show brutality uh, at its most honest. And I think the only thing I didn't click with was the inclusion of Brad Pitt in kind of a pivotal role. I just, it felt a little bit like vanity casting since I think he might have co-produced the movie or something, and it just wasn't a significant casting choice, and it wasn't a very good performance, so I don't know. Like, to cast him as the beacon of hope kind of took me out of the story a little bit, but other than that, a, a, another amazing movie. So, like, those three uh, will definitely be talked about probably more in greater detail. That's, that's all I've been pretty much trying to catch up with 2013 releases, and I know that you brought some up uh, in your 15-minute ending last time, Patrick, that were That's right. very interesting. So have you seen some more lately? Eh, not, not so much. Uh, I, saw, I saw a documentary uh, that's really not worth talking about that much called Rewind This. Uh, it's a oh, documentary I saw that. about VHS, and yeah. it's just every documentary you've ever seen, every like low-budget documentary you've ever seen where it's just a bunch of talking heads – um, it was like vinyl, only with VHS it's, it's, people. It's like the shitty version of vinyl, yeah. Because yeah. vinyl is a fascinating portrait of human being, of all these different human beings and their desire to collect. And VHS, uh, I, it's really funny. I watched the last, I watched the, I, I watched most of it, um, and then uh, my uh, girlfriend came over and we watched the last twenty minutes together. And she was like, and she was like, was this whole movie just, just chubby? 
chubby white guys in their 30s? And I go, yeah, yeah. No, that's every, that's every single person. I think <laughs> there's a couple Japanese people because that's where VHS was also a huge boom thing. But yeah, it was mostly just like the exact kind of people you'd expect to be have really passionate feelings about VHS tapes, which is like fucking you know, white guys in their 30s talking about uh, renting videos when they were 12 or whatever. And it's like there's some parts of it that I thought were interesting, but it's just one of those documentaries that's so shallow that every everything in it is just it's, – it's just a very brief overview and it's like – yeah, I would agree this, with that. This could have been a this could have been like a, a, a like a three page magazine article, and you would get the exact same thing out of it. And you know, but instead, it's easy to it's easy to finance really low budget documentaries um, and get your money back at least through getting them on Netflix or whatever. So it's just another one of those kinds of things that just it exists. It's dumb. Yeah, it was. If there's like a nostalgia part of the brain oh, that lights up, like certainly. that's the only thing that I got out of it. Like going, oh, I remember that. Certainly, you know. Certainly. Yes, I'm. I'm not going to say that I was immune to the charms or to the nostalgia, but not. Uh, it was not enough for me to uh, recommend it at all, unless you just want to waste eighty minutes um, just reminiscing. You could put it on the background while you're cleaning your room. That's what Ex- I did. <laughs> exactly. It's one of those <laughs> movies. Uh, I, I, I saw this before the last episode, but I didn't talk about it in the last episode. Um, there, my, Michelle Gondry has a documentary that came out this year. Oh, I saw that too. Uh, is the man who is tall happy, which mm-hmm. I, I, I thought was pretty interesting. Um, it was. I just don't think Michelle Gondry should have been the guy interviewing him. Like, I didn't. I didn't think it was a bad choice, but there were just moments not necessarily like obviously he uses you know some clever animated techniques to help you decipher his thick accent but um i mean i think noam chomsky is an incredible intellectual genius like i i there was a brief time in my life where i was like kind of getting into linguistics so i definitely read some of his stuff and i liked the movie i just it it, it just I, i felt like a minor Michelle Gondry thing where it's like it could be something where he could take this format and maybe bulk it up into like a waking life kind of you know go all out and just do even more with more interviews or something I I don't know if that's I mean it's it definitely is inconsequential and it's definite if if you want if you're like hey I don't know anything about Noam Chomsky and I want to learn about Noam Chomsky. Like it's not a great place to start. It's no. I mean I mean it's a it's, it's an okay place notes. to start, but it's not a it's not the best Noam Chomsky, Noam Chomsky movie it could be, but I don't think it's right. it's not like it started its life as hey, someone needs to make a documentary about Noam Chomsky and then Michelle Gondry got hired. To me it's just a Michelle Gondry movie uh that Noam Chomsky happens to be and it feels <laughs> it feels kind of just uh, more minor and more experimental the way that some of the short films on that Michelle Gondry DVD box set are. Um, yeah, I can see it's just, that. Where it's just him playing around. And to that extent, I think it's interesting because uh, it's sort of a good Rosetta Stone as to what, uh, what it exactly it is that makes Michelle Gondry tick. And I find that his documentaries are good because they aren't – because you don't have to grapple with sort of his fiction and the fact that honestly he's not a – great writer of dialogue and because uh, I mean English is his second language and so far he's only made English uh, you know fiction films um, so all the ones that he scripted are not you know great and um, I feel not, like there's a lost country movie that was French 
with Audrey Tattoo. I could I thought that was coming out at some point. That's I weird. think it, I think it might still be coming. Mm. I think it might have been released some places. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so that might be on its way as well. But I guess my point is I, I felt the same way when I saw uh, Dave Chappelle's Block Party, which is uh, the part that. Everything that just looks like what you would expect the movie to look like is is just that. It's just a you know a concert film. But then the parts of the film where it just spends ten minutes on that weird couple who has the house on the block, who uh, who are like just kind of crazy hippie couple uh, with the stained glass and the and the and the and the weird like sort of abandoned building that they've taken care of and have been renovating weirdly. Like that's the part where he comes alive, and I feel it the same way. Um, just the kinds of questions he asks and the kind of way he tries to even find a way to make this a movie. Cause it's honestly not, there's nothing about it that just feels like, Oh yeah, that should be a movie. Um, and, and he, and he's very upfront about the struggles he has and the places he fails in this project. Yeah. You know? Which I, I think, I think all of that is just really interesting and a good Rosetta stone for oh like the kind of artist Michelle Gondry is and I think it's valuable in that aspect but it, I mean it's definitely a minor movie but I don't think uh, Noam Chomsky should inherently be a movie <laughs> like I don't I, I'm I mean I've talked about this before I don't think all things I don't think that like cinema is inherently the greatest art form and therefore everything should have a cinematic counterpart I don't think everything should always be adapted to cinema I think Noam Chomsky has written a lot of books and if you want to know what Noam Chomsky thinks you should probably read the books he wrote because that's where you're going to get learn about Noam Chomsky and this is its own weird different thing and not necessarily it didn't have to be go all out and be waking life or whatever it sort of just is a nice minor thing and it's and I'd much rather watch something like is the man who is tall happy um, which is sort of experimenting and unsure of itself and naked, nakedly so than something like Rewind This, where it's yeah. just the same for- documentary format you've seen a billion times, but this time it's about something else that you maybe didn't know this much about. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm much, I like these kinds of minor movies a lot more than I like, you know, a lot of kinds of minor documentaries. Yeah, I would agree, and for the most part, like. I, it's funny because you know there were people who dismissed Waking Life as just a series of conversations. That I mean, obviously you have the rotoscoping, you have that awesome visual technique going for it, but some people can't watch an entire hour and forty minutes of you know often pretentious intellectual <laughs> diatribes, and I can. Um, and it, it, again, you're right. Maybe just download a bunch of Chomsky lectures or Terrence McKenna lectures or Robert Anton Wilson lectures rather than needing to sit down in front of your TV. Uh, I, I still think like he's, he's inventive and playful and it, it's certainly a lot more worthwhile than something like Green Hornet. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, most things are. That's true. Sergio, have you caught up with any of the ones we've talked about? I haven't seen the um, the man who was tall and happy. I have seen the the other three you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, very fast. Um, Twelve Years a Slave. I think is a good film. I wasn't blown away by it. Mm-hmm. I because I think this is odd. And and actually, I was on it of uh, WBEC, and they were shocked when I said this. Um, I love Steve McQueen. I think Shame is brilliant. Me too. I love Shame a lot. Me too. Uh, I like Hunger a lot. But I think the approach he took to this movie, this will shock you, and people think I'm weird. I, I think 
I, I think, the, the, uh, believe it or not, I think 12 Years a Slave is too tame. Hmm. I think it's too tame. I think it should have been more in your face. I think it should have been more brutal. I think, let's get the real horrors of slavery. It, think, it looked to me like he was, he was looking at everything from a very objective, almost British point of view. Like, oh, that's rather interesting. Hmm. Now let's look over here. That's rather... Oh, that's so strange. It certainly has here. moments, though. And, and, and I go like, no, I want it more visceral, more mm-hmm. in your face, more on the level, well, then people wouldn't down want to see it, but more of a level of Goodbye, Uncle Tom. Oh, yeah. Which is this Italian film made in the early 70s. There were riots in the street, literally, in Chicago and in New York when this film was shown, um, which is about two guys who go back, the idea, and so like in Time Machine, and go back and, and witness slavery from this more objective point of view. It gets really crazy, but the brutality is, is you can't take it. But that's the point. That is the point, and that's the point to get across. And I think it's a good film. I really do think that 12 Years of Slave is a good film. I, it wasn't – it, it I, this is the thing where I got caught away by the reviews because everybody was saying how brilliant it was, so I expected to be absolutely blown away to the back of the theater, yeah. and it didn't happen. I, I, would stuff, I would agree with that. I don't yeah. think it has the lingering impact that shame had. Because I was, I was definitely surprised. Like I was, I was moved, but not as much as I thought. Based, I'm, and again, that could be just you know a preconceived hype sort of sinking into the experience. But um, I, I still think that acting wise, again, just sometimes that's all it takes too for me to get really invested. I mean, there's definitely things about it I think that could have been done better, but. When you have incredible actors at the top of their game doing amazing work, and uh, I just I was sold based on uh, I can never pronounce his name, but <laughs> the guy Chid- from Red Chid- Belt. Chidwell Elifor. Chidwell Right. Yeah. And Michael right. Fassbender, of course, is you know oh, what can you say? If only there was like a major movie that came out in the past couple of years about slavery that was really brutal and violent, um, but I can't. None are never coming to mind. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, well, <laughs> yeah, how about that? How about that? Hey, gee, I'm, I'm trying to think of it. Does it start with a D? I'm trying to remember. No, it starts with a J, over... I think. I think it starts with a J. Oh, it starts with a J. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's, there's, always, there's always Mandingo. Yeah, yep. there we go. Uh, yeah. And, you know, but Mandingo is, you know, and I, it's a running joke with me, but I really, I really love that picture. But that film was a exploitation film. Like, mm-hmm. it, like it, was the, it, it, was, it was one of the major inspirations for Django. Um, Mandingo is an is a exploitation film. It's, it, it actually it was really, really one of the really first Hollywood movies, Hollywood-backed movies, that actually dealt with brutality of slavery. It really was. And but you know they go into the other ways and it becomes a, a it becomes a hot house gothic sudden gothic soap opera and all that sort of stuff. But um, but but uh, I, I do like I do like Twelve Years a Slave. It just it doesn't it wasn't it it, it just didn't blow me to like I said it didn't blow me to the back of the theater. Right. It wasn't the overwhelming experience I thought it was going to be. Um, Nebraska, I love to death. Yeah, Nebraska, I absolutely love to death. I think it's one of the most beautifully written movies I've seen this year, mm-hmm. and because it says so much with so little. 
Yeah, that's exactly a great way to put it. And and there's a great line, a really great line towards the end of the film, which explains it all. Where a woman asks Will Forte, uh, this, "Is your father uh, is he suffering from Alzheimer's?" And he says, "No, he just believed what everybody told him." Yeah, and yeah, that's, that's a, true oof. because that generation. I mean, guys like him. I'm thinking my father. Guys like him, man, they were good guys who got exploited and yeah. got used. And there's a scene in the film which talk about how you can relate to something. Um, there's a scene in the movie where, you know, he goes back to see um, the, the house he lived in. Oh, yeah. And he talks about his brother who died when he was six. And then you find out earlier in the film that he had a sister who died when she was 19. Mm-hmm. And my father came from a large family, a lot of brothers and two sisters. And he had a brother who died when he was six. And my father had a sister who died when she was 16. No, 19. She died when she was 19. And in that time, you know, and we're not talking not that long ago. If you're a child and you got sick, they started digging the grave. Seriously. Because, because you couldn't, back in those days, you couldn't, if a child, if you, as a child got scarlet fever, which doesn't exist anymore, rheumatic fever, you got the flu, you start digging the grave because nothing you can do to save that kid. Right. And that's a hard, scrabble life. And, you know, Dern, who is brilliant, brilliant in that picture, mm-hmm. ab- absolutely brilliant. It's one of the most naturalistic performances I've seen this year. Um, he's a guy who, he's lived this hard, Woody Grant, he's lived this hard, scrabble life. He's a good, decent guy, you know, living in an unforgiving land, which is the Northern Plains, which is unforgiving. And, you know, people took advantage of him. And all his, you know, all the dreams he had never came to, you know, to light. So that's why when you see him in the movie, that's why the way how he is. Yeah. I mean, look at just Stacy Keach in the bar, everybody laughing. And you're expecting him to explode or something. Just But that would just be the wrong move. Yeah, he's not that kind of person. And they're not that kind of people. Which is which is why Will Forte does what he does because yeah. he's younger. He's a different generation. Those guys didn't do they didn't do things like that. Mm-hmm. And you know he's married to, he's married Jane Scribb, who's amazing, <laughs> very very funny, yeah, very funny. And right, he's married to a woman who is like not easy to live with, evidently. And it's it's a really it's a really moving film, and it's very uplifting. Oh, for sure. To get the wrong idea. This is a very, very uplifting. Really, it's a really feel-good movie. Yeah. About sad people, but it's a really feel-good movie, and you feel good at the end of the movie. It's got a beautiful ending. It's got a perfect ending. Perfect ending. Yeah, Patrick. In the next couple weeks, this is the one you should go out of your way to catch up on. Uh, You guys are still talking about the Lone Ranger, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. yeah, right. No, I'm I definitely, I definitely want to go see Nebraska. Uh, that's definitely. I mean, all three of the movies you listed are films I want to try to see before we uh, do our episode. Yeah, and and very quickly about American Hustle. I like it. I wasn't blown away by it. I think the movie spends too much time on the um, the, the the whole love triangle aspect yeah. of the story. I could see that. That's, I'm not that crazy about it. I'm more interested in the con and everything else that's going on. Um, I like it a whole lot better than Silver Linings, which I did not like at all. Mm. I got a, I got some major off of Silver Linings. Um, 
the, the, the thing about it, which I, I do like about it, though, is that it reminds me of the old... You talk about Scorsese. Yeah. Okay, that's true. But it reminds me of the old David O. Russell. The great thing about his older movies is that they were totally unpredictable. Oh, yeah, Flirting with Disaster you know, is I, one I mean, of my favorites. Flirting with Disaster, you don't know where that thing's going, <laughs> you know? Which right. is brilliant. Same thing with Three Kings. You really don't know where this film is going. Mm-hmm. You think you got it, but you don't. And even when you think you got it, you still don't know where it's going. Um, the fighter, you know, it's rocky. I know where that thing's going. Sure. Um, uh, that's, that's one of the major problems I had with Silver Linings Playbook is that it's so predictable. You know exactly where this thing is going in the first 15 seconds. I mean, first 15 minutes. Yeah, that didn't and bother just, me. I, was, I, w- I, I was found it endearing. I was just sitting there waiting for, okay, let's get to the next thing because I know it's coming. Let's get to the next thing because I know it's coming. You know, I did, it, it didn't knock me out. And here's the, here's the thing about the picture. And it, it, it sounds like I'm being a snob again. No, no. Okay, maybe I am. Okay, <laughs> but okay, you will agree that you, there's, anything you, there's, 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 uh, there's nothing you can do in movies anymore. I mean, you can do anything in a movie nowadays. You can do any subject matter. You can do anything. You know, my God, you know, Ron Ventura has this four-hour nymphomania movie <laughs> yeah. coming out. You could do anything in a movie, okay. But there are a few things that they could do back then that you can't do today. One is how alcoholics and people with mental problems are treated. Mm-hmm. Back in the 40s, 30s, people who were alcoholics or, or crazy were comedy father. Yeah, that's they, they true. They were there for laughs, right? You can't do that today, except for Silver Linings Playbook. It's so retrograde. It makes people with mental problems the source of humor. Now, you can disagree with me, but I think that's what it does. And it bothers me with that. I'm being a snob. If this movie was made in 1960, it would have been Jack Lemmon and Kim Novak. <laughs> You know, the, the the neurotic guy and the kooky, you know, eccentric girl directed by Richard Klein, and somehow they meet and fall in love. Like, if you got a mental problem, a hot chick can cure you of it. Mm. That's the that's the thing behind behind Silver Lines Playbook. You're crazy. Meet a hot chick. She's a little wacky, but meet a hot chick. She cures you. I've heard that argument. That is so retrograde. <laughs> yeah, he, he's heard it. He's heard it from me uh, last <laughs> last well, year when we were doing the 2012 roundup. I'm with you. I, I'm kind of with you, Sergio. I don't focus on yeah. that so much, just because I I do see it. I, a lot of O. Russell's style, whether it be I Heart Huckabee's Flirting with Disaster or some elements of Silver Linings Playbook, definitely harken back to the screwball comedy of earlier times, and I I think it it just it, it hits the funny bone but it also again it might have just be something subconsciously in my brain where that's also the kinds of comedies i grew up watching you know the his girl fridays and the the, the more fast-paced crazier you know uh, witty dialogue all that your jack lemons that's the kind of stuff that i think it's not necessarily like a direct copy of but i think he's inspired and influenced by that style and something like flirting with disaster, yeah, it works, and it's more unpredictable. And I think that the absurdism of it all to when like Richard Jenkins is tripping on acid—that's a lot more surreal and goofy and funny 
than some of the stuff in Silverline's playbook. But I was won over by the characters. I was biased because I read the book beforehand and had a huge response to the book. Um, but I I understand where people are coming from when they say that it's you know making light of mental illness in you know the using the characters for comedy fodder. But at the same time, that's not how my brain was registering it when I was watching it. Well, maybe one of the things I should say too is because uh, um, one of my uh, I have two close friends who have close relatives who are bipolar, mm-hmm. and they have told me stories. With you got to be kidding me! It's not funny, right? I mean, it's not funny. And I mean, they have one friend that told me some really nightmarish experiences she, you know, that her relative has had. And I go, well, you know, yeah, it's it's not funny. It's not comedy fodder. Now, now here's the thing: you can make comedy of anything. That's true. You can make humor out of anything, and it's absolutely true. I do believe that, but I don't think Silver Linings play um, Silver Linings did it. I really don't think they did it. Um. And I think it just fails in that example. And like I said, I think it's so woefully... The movie tips its hand so many times in the first 30 minutes of the movie that I just sat there and said, okay, I'm just waiting for this thing to play out because I know exactly where it's going. I think I think the main problem with Silver Lines, it's not that you know bipolar disorder or any, any number of the mental disorders on display in Silver Lines' playbook, you can't make comedy about them. But I think if you're going to be making comedy out of sensitive subjects like that, you have to be honest. Um, and I think the thing about that movie is... Yeah, the film's not honest. It's not it's, honest. It, it's right. not honest. It's, it's, it's very selective about how crazy Bradley Cooper is in any given scene based on when, it's, you know, when it suits the film the best and, and how... Right. And, 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 and I, think, I think films like that... I mean, and it's, I don't think it's a terrible movie. I think a lot of the actors are fine in it, and there's a lot of moments I like it. And it's not an unfunny movie, but I definitely – it's not honest. And if it's going to be screwball comedy, then in, it should not try to be intense Oscar-winning drama. And if it's going to be Oscar-winning drama, it should be honest. And, um, and I think it tries to sort of hedge its bets in being crowd-pleasing. Um, when the realities of something like bipolar disorder are not crowd-pleasing, they're horrific. And we can talk about this more on the upcoming David O. Russell episode next year than I'm planning on putting on the schedule. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I, I understand the arguments. I think just there's just something that's like, maybe it isn't a pure bias that, you know, like, oh, O. Russell, I just, I don't know, I think something about his sensibilities just work for me every time. And uh, you know what? You know what else puts a smile on my face? Musicals. Yay! Yeah, yeah Segway King strikes again! <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Keep going. Okay. Let's talk about the director of the episode. Who would that be, Jim? It would be Vincent. Vincent Manelli. Not Millie Vanilli. That's what I said. Okay, good. Have yourself a merry little Christmas Let your heart be light From now on your troubles will be out of sight Hi everybody, it's Patrick Rapole here I'd like to wish you and yours a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa 
whatever it is that makes you happy. But I'd also like to talk to you about, well, something a bit more serious. That's the dangers of crocodile. Now, we all know crocodile, it's the uh, hit designer drug. It's sweeping the nation. Um, I know a lot of you are teenagers out there and you're worried. Uh, you're worried that people are going to think you're not cool if you don't do crocodile. Um, but guess what? There are a lot of other drugs you can do that will make you cool. Um, you know, uh, depending on what you do after you smoke weed, that could be cool. Uh, if you're the type who, you know, smokes weed and watches, watches Godzilla movies or, you know, listens to, uh, you know, weird avant-garde music from the 70s, that's, that's all very cool. Um, I mean, if you're the type of person who smokes weed and you watched, uh, you know, you, 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 you watch uh, Super Troopers and then you want to uh, listen to 311. You know what? That's that's not so cool. But but it's not the weed that's the problem. Um, so you know, cocaine is cool. Cocaine's very cool. I mean, don't don't do too much. Don't go crazy. But a little bit of cocaine at a dance party is is a wonderful thing. Uh, that's cool too. Uh, I guess my point is, there's a lot of other options out there, kids, and you don't have to do crocodile. Um, well, <laughs> that's about all for me. I'm going to let you get back to the episode, and uh, once again, uh, happy holidays. Up until this past week, believe it or not, the only film I've ever seen Judy Garland is, is it's, it's a very obscure picture called The Wizard of Oz. And uh, musicals have kind of been a, a bit of a blind spot for me, not because Wait, I don't... that's true? You, that's the only film you've ever seen her in? <laughs> yes. Not even like Star is Born. I'm going to now. You better see a Star is Born. See what I'm working with, Sergio. Oh my God! Okay. <laughs> wow. Well, at so, least I've seen The Gate, Patrick. Yeah, that's true. I haven't seen the I haven't seen The Gate. You're, I'm up on you on Judy Garland, but you're up on me on Stephen Dorff. So <laughs> I guess it's even. Stephen Dorff is so great, and I shot Andy Warhol, by the way. Not awesome. Uh, yeah. Um. So. Like I said, it, it's not that I don't enjoy musicals, because I do. They're just n- not a genre I have actively sought out. With you know, with the exception, I've probably seen Singing in the Rain half a dozen times, because who, who doesn't love that? Um, I just I enjoy a film that has a lively spirit. And yet, uh, this director, he's got sophistication going on. And these incredible aesthetics, you know, whether... It's a musical or a melodrama, kind of just that color palette at times, especially in something like Some Came Running, I was reminded of Douglas Sirk. Maybe not quite as extreme in terms of the colorization, but the, just the, with, with Meet Me in St. Louis, I felt like, okay, this is probably a, a time in film history where that Busby Berkeley style spectacle was kind of transformed a little bit more into something that uh, could have fit more into a a melodramatic storyline. At least it has emotional depth and a more narrative-driven spirit going on. And he's he's a great storyteller. And although like something like an, an American in Paris kind of focused more on the stylized ballets and incredible Gene Kelly dancing, um, there's no denying that he's, a master of of this type of filmmaking, the craftsmanship and the casting, and even even a comedy like the original Father of the Bride stands out really because he's got great comic timing. His instincts are usually spot on, and 
there's not a moment in Meet Me in St. Louis that doesn't give me a warm feeling. I love everything about it, and I'm so glad I finally saw it after oh, it's, all these years. It's an all-time favorite of mine, and I, I think what you said is, is really valid, definitely about uh, sort of the, the, the shift. I mean, so many musicals are just about someone from the Midwest coming to the Big Apple, and they want to they wanna make it. They want to be a hoofer. They want to be a dancer on Broadway, and they catch the eye of some up-and-coming songwriter or some producer or something, and it's a rags-to-riches sort of a thing. This mm-hmm. is actively about people from the Midwest rejecting New York, oh, <laughs> which yeah. is a remarkable sort of a thing uh, to be in a musical. And even It even goes into – how the musical numbers uh, come out. I mean, the first musical number, Meet Me in St. Louis, um, not all the, the care, it's just sung by one person who's going upstairs and then it gets stuck in the head of other people who hear them singing it like throughout the house. Yeah, I and love they that. Don't all, they don't all know the words. So some of them are just doing that thing that you do when you actually just sing to yourself, where you're just like, Night me in St. Louis, Louis. Like, like it's, I mean, the the musical numbers are so low key. There's no, I mean, as you know, they're as expensive and elaborate and beautiful as some Vincent Minnelli musicals, like The Pirate and An American in Paris, are mm-hmm. with some of their num are yeah with some of their numbers. Like this is such a low key musical, and it's it it's it's something that I, I just find really remarkable about it and really great about it as someone who is really responds to. Um, Sort of more, uh, more kind of uh, low key and um, specific kind of um, musical performances and films. You know, like uh, I, I think this kind of movie is the front runner for like the kind of movies that like Craig Brewer makes, where it's like the music that happens just comes out of people. It, it doesn't come out of performers necessarily. They're just people who have this music in them, and um, yeah. So I, and I mean, there's a lot about uh, this movie I really love. Yeah, I I have to tell you, I Vincent now is one of my absolute favorite directors in the entire world. I love his work, and this movie was really revolutionary when it came out for that part that you said that this wasn't a big grandstanding musical. This was a mu- this was a musical that's based more on human emotion, and the song sequences, the musical sequences in the, in the movie basically are an extension of the emotions and the feelings that people have at that particular moment. Um, when this movie was made, I mean, th- uh, there was a lot of trouble because there's, there's not really a plot in this film. It's, it's basically episodic, and it just simply reflects what is really a fantasized view of what life was back then at the turn of the century what people like to think it was like back then. Um, It wasn't, but that's what they like to think it was. But um, it was just a film that dealt with ordinary people, human emotions, and human feelings. It it had nothing to do with big spectacular dance numbers or um, big musical sequences. It was just a couple days in the life or a period in life of one family in a Midwestern town. And there were many rip-offs of this movie after it, particularly by Warner Brothers. They did a whole series of sort of similar movies, like on Moonlight Bay and stuff like that, that are shown all the time on TCM. As a matter of fact, Meet Me in St. Louis is going to be on TCM tomorrow night. 
Nice. So anybody wants to see it, it's on tomorrow night, I think, starting at 7 o'clock uh, Central Time. So you want to see what we're talking about, you get a chance to see it. I, I think they mm-hmm. might miss it by the time the episode comes out. Um, oh, okay. But- <laughs> well, you a chance. Yeah, you, huh. you missed it. But, um... Yeah, I, but even and, – and, I mean, yeah, you're definitely right. It's a very nostalgic movie. It definitely has a very uh, rose-colored glasses about the turn of the century and just sort of, oh, right. look how idyllic and peaceful and nice everything was. But at the same time, one of the things I really loved about this movie um, that I, I think I only really no- – I really only truly noticed this time around watching it is it's shockingly for a movie made in the 40s that takes place in you know the aughts, uh, the first – the uh, the 19 aughts. Uh, it's very irreverent. Like, Tootie is one of my favorite <laughs> little kid characters. Yep. She has the most uh, morbid mind of any little kid in any right. movie I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, that whole Halloween sequence. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's insane. It's just like, it's, oh, it's, oh, yeah, it's that night where all the kids come out and they just start burning firewood in the middle of the street and they nail their neighbors with flour. Like, it's, and, uh, and and that's I mean that's that's a great I mean especially you compare that to now when uh, you know in 2013 when pe- kids are trunk or treating when kids parents are too scared to let their kids actually go out door to door so people will get all their cars in a church parking lot um, and they'll hand out candy as kids walk across the parking lot and just get candy from members of their church like <laughs> the it, 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 things have changed so much um, and even the irreverence in just how you know, uh, blatantly horny all of the girl, the teenage girls are in this movie, um, which is one of the things I really love about this movie is that it, it feels very feminist in that all of the girls uh, are, are the main characters. All the main characters are women and they're, <clears throat> and they're, and they're, they're given full lives and all of the men are just sort of dopes who get in the way <laughs> of the women. Right. And by the way, do you believe it or not, the studio originally cut the Halloween sequence out of the movie. Oh. Hmm. And because they said, oh, it doesn't work and it's too morbid or we don't like it, and they cut it out of the picture. And thank God somebody, I guess it was Minnelli or somebody, I can't remember how, said, are you crazy? That's a great sequence. Put it back in. And he did. Yeah, I think they were too worried that too long passes without a musical number. Because again, yeah, yeah, about it in terms right. of old, start, start thinking about it in terms of more traditional senses of the musical with which this movie is not right and like i said you know it was it was a risky undertaking at the time and also was very risky to give it to manelli at the time because he had only done maybe one or two movies before this one and this was going to be a major project and of course this was the first time he worked with judy garland and he of course not surprisingly hated each other the first time they started working and as they got along as the project went along, she began to more and more warm up to his directing style and what did he want out from her. And uh, there you go. Yeah. I've, he wound I'm, up getting married. I'm just impressed, too, by the cinematography and the technicolor of it all. Just It, it, it sort of creates this you know, a version of uh, St. Louis that does seem almost like the land of Oz, and it's probably just because of association, but also... Uh, just just certain framing moments and like how the weather is just beautiful and the dazzling sunshine, the blue skies, the Christmas snow, and it it, it just feels you know like a place that you've been to and the period 
doesn't feel dated, even though obviously they're, the costumes could be and all that. But I, 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 and you know, like the songs, like the boy next door, that trolley song, and I had no idea that "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas" Merry Christmas came right. from this movie. <laughs> so, right, just a lot of great, like oh my god, moments throughout. Right, and since you bring up the visual aspect, we might as well bring up a little bit about Manelli's background. He came from a family mm-hmm. of performers. He um, started his career in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, he started as a window dresser at Marshall Field, and then later as a set designer and art director at the Chicago Theater, back when they had stage shows. All the major theaters would have stage shows. And then, since it was part of a chain, he moved to New York, started doing set design in New York, and later at Music Radio City, at Radio City Music Hall, and uh, from that started directing and musicals on Broadway stage, on the New York stage. And that led him to being discovered by Louis B. Mayer and MGM, and he brought him to Hollywood to start making movies. But he always, the point is that he always had a visual style. He always had a visual eye. That's always paramount in Minnelli. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about that, you're talking about a guy who all his life worked in the visual means, the visual realm. Yeah. And, and, and in Meet Me in St. Louis, it's because, I mean, you know, you you watch, I mean, and obviously we're going to talk about an American in Paris in, in a moment, but, you know, you watch the end of that ballet and there's no question it's one of the most spectacularly beautiful, yeah. you know, things in American cinema, like in the history of American cinema. But um, Meet Me in St. Louis, without anything as broad and spectacular, he still makes good use of his eye because one of the things that I, I find that he does so often um, – uh, in watching his movies is he really uh, is, has an interest in depths. Uh, he's very good at sort of having this deep focus and having lots of going on in the background and the foreground right. and, and, and cameras going through windows and through rooms and how people talk to each other through rooms and stuff. And he, it really, you know, uh, even in something more abstract, like the, uh, the segment, a great, not a great, uh, this heart of mine, this heart of mine segment in Zigfield Follies, um, in which Fred Astaire uh, is, is sort of this uh, charming jewel thief uh, who dances with this woman. Like, uh, it's a more abstract, more stage bound sort of a thing, but it's all about. Yeah, you mean in Yolanda and the Thief, right? Oh, uh, no, this is from. Oh, is that, was that taken from Yolanda and the Thief? Because I saw this in Ziegfeld Follies. Oh, Ziegfeld I'm sorry. You're, you're talking about the. Um, uh, I'm sorry. I'm thinking about the. Is it the, um, the Limehouse sequence? Uh, no, it's the uh, well, that I mean that sequence as well. I mean that ends with that great framing thing of through the window. But I'm talking about this this heart of uh, I think it's yeah this heart of mine where Fred Astaire is at the ball the fancy ball and he That's charms right. the woman and he steals her bracelet. I, I'm confusing yeah. that with Yolanda and the Thief. That's is, right. Yeah, the the, the uh, musical which a lot of people don't know about. Right. Right. But with I'm, Fred Astaire. Right. But even at okay. even at the even at the party where uh, you know the family's brother, the brother and the fam- the older brother in the family in uh, Meet Me in St. Louis is going away, and they're all just sort of doing that kind of folksy dancing. Like it's all about just the multiple levels of people in the background and the foreground, and people moving, you know, through the the depths and really making use of the three dimensional space and filling the frame in that way. Um, see, and but that also comes from his years working as a window dresser. Yeah, as a window designer in Marshall Fields, because what do you do when you stare at uh, stare at one of those windows? Every detail you have to study every detail, even far back in the in in the corner. There's something going on. 
That's I I did not know that about his past. That makes perfect sense. Right. Yeah, that's really totally fascinating. And, and, right. He he simply applied those techniques of multi layering. It, multi doing multi layer uh, effects within the image. He got that from when he worked as a window dresser, a set designer, and Marshall Field. We went to those Christmas windows, and what do you see? You're looking at a window, and there's layers of detail mm-hmm. that go all the way all the way through the back. Yeah, you can tell he's another one of those masterful directors who pays attention to every detail, and <clears throat> it's kind of a simple thing for me. But I'm always a sucker for when a film ends with the majority of the entire characters all together and doing something beautiful like even even something at like the ending of Rushmore just all the characters in one room having a joyous celebration and this ends with like the entire family overlooking that uh you know the, the center of the world's fair and all these lights right. are illuminating and it's just uh, that just it's just a perfect feel good movie in every way well, that, yeah, I mean, that's the that's like that comes from the tradition of yeah. even just Shakespearean ideals of what a comedy is, which is <laughs> it's a comedy is a play that ends in a wedding, you know. Yep. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you think now I'm now later on I'm going to compare that to the final scene in another Minnelli film, which has in a way the opposite effect, hmm. and an effect that it's a spectacular final image, but it's about death and desolation not about a family togetherness and love of family. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a completely different, but it's a final image that is just a knockout final image in a Minnelli film. It, I, I find he's good at, he's uh, pretty good at that. I mean, yeah. uh, other than like the pirate, which had sort of, unfortunately had a, a second thing sort of tacked on by uh, MGM. Like uh, I, remember right. the, the, I remember really, really loving the final image in the bad and the beautiful um, uh, mm-hmm. where, which is sort of his it's it's almost his uh citizen Kane in Hollywood where it's these three people who had uh who had sort of uh unfortunate and fortunate runnings with this uh notorious Hollywood producer sort of recounting their tales and it shows all these different sides of him and at the end um you know that they're asked to work with him once again and they all decline um despite the fact that their time with him wasn't all bad. He, in one way or another, because he was so ruthlessly uh, ambitious, he you know ended up screwing them over. But at the end, um, when the producer that was that asked them to come together and to work with him is on the phone with him, they all pick up a, a phone and listen right. in because they they do want to know about him. And that's it's such a great final image. All three of them sort of leaning into the earpiece. Um, he's very yeah, he's very good at that. I mean, and just obviously crafting images. Um, one of my other favorite things about I mean I, I mentioned this I, I did mention this but like I love that Meet Me in St. Louis is the the lust in the movie mm-hmm. is so I mean it's it's coded um, to an extent but not as much as uh, I, I I would expect um, from a movie that time where uh, you know just yeah just Oh my God! The boys outside and the Judy Judy Garland and her and her sister—they're just they're just staring out the window, drooling over the way that like two boys would drool over a girl sunbathing in her backyard in an '80s comedy, like just openly gawking at at him and his nose and um and she she come and there's that you know just that wonderful moment where she comes up with a little plan to make him follow her around and let the lights out and she pretends. Like it's it's such it's so telling that you know she pretends to be more vulnerable and scared of the dark than she is. She has to, to attract him. Well, she's uh, also really disappointed when he like you know the the boy next door's 
final line of the night is, you got a real firm handshake for a girl. It's <laughs> like yeah. just a look of disappointment on her when he leaves. And you could tell like there, there is this like internalized lust throughout the movie, even though it's not like necessarily at the forefront all, at all times. It's just there. I mean, I, and obviously, you know, the things that made Judy Garland so great in Wizard of Oz serve her well in Meet Me in St. Louis as well. I mean, she's obviously has an amazing singing voice and she's strikingly beautiful and she also seems, you know, very wholesome. And mm-hmm. But in this movie, she gets to, and even more so in, later in the movie The Pirate, she gets to show more of her comedic side. Um, and I think that's one of the things about Judy Garland that I like the most is that she's such a gifted comic actress in addition to being such a talented singer and performer. And also, this was, in effect, her first sort of adult role. Right. Mm-hmm. In a movie. Right. I mean, I mean, she already she was an adult by the time the movie was made, but MGM still wanted to keep her as a... As a matter of fact, I think she had... I think she had just been divorced, if I'm, if I'm right. And um, MGM wanted to keep her as, you know, this little girl. This little girl. And, you know, at the point, it's like, you can't keep her being a little girl anymore, and this was her first... Well, I think in this movie, she's supposed to be like a late teenager, I think. Well, you know, at, at least it's, it's getting towards more a more of an adult person. And then after that, she did play adults. You know, young adults in movies. It's, yeah, it's easy for me to forget, um, just because... Um, uh, hold on, just a moment. I'm sorry, Jim, could you pause just a moment? Oh, yeah. Um... Make note. Did your heater turn on? Or it sounds like somebody's taking a bath. I'm really sorry. I need to remember to turn that off before we start recording. Um, The uh, central, the heating in my house is very loud. Oh, Uh, yeah. I remember um, that. Right. (laughs) I I just turned it off, but it probably won't turn off for another five minutes. Is it? Can you still hear me fine? Is it? Oh, yeah. uh, Okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. Cool. Well, I'll just pick up where I left off and just edit this part out, and then uh, got it. And this, the heating, this that sound will go go in about five minutes. But I, I guess it's easy for me to uh, forget that uh, you know that uh, Dorothy in Wizard of Oz is supposed to be a, a child. You know, like the the role came down between Judy Garland and Shirley Temple. Uh, <laughs> but but being such so much younger than Judy Garland, you know, was in the movie and looks in the movie. Like I always thought of her as a teenager. Um, and she was like, you know, she was 16 when she made that movie, but, uh, but it's true that, uh, Dorothy, I think they, they wanted her to sort of look younger than she actually did. Um, they, you know, they, <laughs> they, they sort of had to, you know, bind her breasts down and just sort of make her look like she wasn't pubescent, uh, uh, even though she clearly was. And, and, and yeah, this is the, that this movie is almost it's a fitting coming out where for her adult roles because this movie is uh, where she is you know like her character in this film is is sort of in that transitionary period where she yeah. um, you know she's the middle she's the middle child who is not quite you know her older sister but isn't is clearly not one of the younger ones. Um, it, the division between the siblings is very very clearly uh, struck between the two the two little who are just little kids who run around and get into mischief and her and, and the older sister who all they think about is <laughs> is their lustful feelings for, for boys. Which we can all relate to. Oh, certainly. When I was, <laughs> when I was that age, I was looking at the boy next door longingly. 
But uh, but he was a fifty he was a fifty year old man who mowed, <laughs> mowed his lawn with his shirt off. So it was a little bit of a different vibe. <laughs> well, I think we should move on because uh, I'm I'm very excited to talk about some some Gene Kelly here. Uh, so I I hope you got your tapping shoes on, Patrick. Yeah, you got rhythm. I got music. Oh, who, um, uh, who can ask for anything more? Oh, no. almost. Oh, yeah. Almost, you almost got it. That's fine. That's okay. You gotta. You, I mean, as to be, you're not a musical person, so you you need to brush up on your Gershwin. You gotta I go do. back. And, I do. Wasn't uh, there a, a Kevin Klein movie about like he played Gershwin or that's, no? He played Cole Porter. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes, Cole Porter's another one. Other than other than the Gershwin brothers, Cole Porter is my favorite of that songwriter. Mm. I have. Cool. I never seen a lovely though. So is this your first watch for an American Paris, or have you seen it before? Oh no! I'd seen this. I, I'd certainly. Um, I'd say that my senior year in high school is when I first uh, saw Singing in the Rain, and then I promptly went out and watched a whole bunch of other Gene Kelly nice. uh, musicals because I was just obsessed with him. And um, you know, this is definitely one of the bigger ones. So uh, mm-hmm. I had seen this before. I think I definitely appreciate more the ballet at the end. Uh, yeah. Just as just as someone who my appreciation for musicals and just even dance. Has grown. I mean, one of the reasons I love. I think one of the reasons Singing in the Rain is such an accessible movie is because the dancing is so acrobatic, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to balletic. So uh, even if you aren't the kind of person who is really into dance, you can still be amazed at fit as a fiddle and uh, make them laugh and stuff like that. Because yeah, same like you can be amazed by Buster Keaton. Yeah, or Buster Keaton or Jackie Chan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, whereas this film is much more. Uh, balletic in its um, dance dance numbers, so I don't think I appreciate it as much as I did this uh, as I did you know rewatching it. But um, I do have to say it's not one of my favorite uh, musicals, um, if if only because uh, I, and again I do I do honestly believe the last the ballet at the end is just one of the greatest things of all time. Yeah, but it feels like that, and I mean that that ballet at the end is why the movie was made. They. They wanted to make the um, do the American in Paris ballet by Gershwin, and sort of this script was written to prop up <laughs> that. Um, mm-hmm. And that that is, I mean, and that is its own movie. That I mean, while Gene Kelly was preparing that and and choreographing that and and rehearsing that, uh, Vincent Minnelli actually made the the sequel to Father of the Bride. He had that much time. Yeah, <laughs> that he he made an entire movie before they came back and filmed that part. Um, but, uh, so, and it's, and that part's all great. The story I find, and I mean, you're going to be watching movies from the forties and the fifties. You're going to have to deal with regressive, you know, uh, you know, views towards gender and sexuality and stuff like that. And it's just, um, and the that's repression just that, of the time. Well, yeah. That's just something you have to deal with. You have to mm-hmm. deal with the fact that Gene Kelly's romantic sort of comic persona in the, a lot of these movies is that of someone who is harassing women, <laughs> like you know, like he, he's mostly he's he he is as much Pepe Pepe Le Pew as he is <laughs> anything else. Yeah, and and in this movie where it also has the storyline of gasp, the woman wants to pay for Gene Kelly's things, and how you know, like what a you know, like what a what a betrayal of his morals that is for him to allow a woman to buy him dinner and stuff like that, and like. It's it feels very regressive. Um, yeah, and, the, also, and, and on top of that, on top of that, Leslie Caron is awfully young. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Even you even know, her character is awfully young. Yeah, yeah. she was yeah, nine, she was I mean. nineteen. Her character is awfully young. She. I don't think she was even that far removed from the real the, the character the age of the character in the movie. But yeah, yeah. In, in the movie, she's <laughs> she's potential jailbait actually. But uh, and and right, the, the woman wants to buy Gene Kelly. You know, I, personally, I would go like, yeah, sure, go ahead. But you know. Right, a standard you can't do that. Yeah, so I mean, in that way, it doesn't hook me the same way, and it's not as it's, for me, it's not as fun of a story as say the pirate or, or uh, you know, Meet Me in St. Louis. But um, I yeah. think all the actual musical numbers themselves are really great. That's what. I, again, I was astonished by those for sure, and I do feel like the plot is a lot looser here, and I didn't like have the emotional resonance or you know the the just just the kind of overall warm sunny feeling i got from meet me in st louis but I, there's so much to admire again you know in terms of the direction but you know gene kelly as an incredible presence and it's funny when you mention that regression too it's i i, I always think back to my theater experience of seeing um far from heaven and how like people were laughing at these things that now we sort of take for granted and Every now and then, and we've probably brought this up on the show before, like when uh, I talked about Ace in the Hole and, you know, Kirk Douglas is slapping that woman around and like the shock of seeing that taking place in that era. It's it's still like, you know, just seeing these, uh, you know, these gender stereotypes or the repression of the era. It definitely has like an uncomfortable, like an uncomfortable feeling that I think people tend to laugh at now. But at the time it came out, it was reflective. So it's 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 tough to put yourself in that mindset. But you know, you know what? You know, what? I can tell you a movie that will shock you hmm. because if you see it today, and it's, the movie's not that old. If you see it today, you'll be shocked. There is a comedy called A Fine Madness with Sean Connery. Came out in the just about the time when he was becoming big with Bond. Not to be with, confused uh, with uh, Blake Edwards' A Fine Mess. No, okay, it's good. called Fine Madness <laughs> with Joanne Woodward, and he plays this alcoholic poet. Hmm. And the running gag in the movie is that he keeps trying to hit her. Every time he gets mad, he keeps swinging at her, and she ducks out of the way. That's a running gag in the movie, right? Wow. And so finally, at the end of the film, she tells him that she's pregnant, What? and he slugs her. And she <laughs> falls to the ground, and her line is, gosh, you really love me. <laughs> Now, that film came out in 64. I used to see, they used to show on television, you know. And I go, okay, in 1964, 65, that was funny. How could you show that picture today to anybody? Yeah. Or that thing, you'd be horrified, but that's the running gag. He's always, when he gets mad, he's trying to really deck her one, and she's ducking out of the way, you know. It's a big laugh gag, Mm -hmm. big joke. I mean, I mean, that's that was that is the catchphrase from the honeymooners. Is one of these right. days, yeah. Alice, I'm one of these days you. to the moon, Alice yeah. to the moon, right? So yeah. I mean, it's different, and to an extent, you know, you just have to adjust. This it gets easier the more and more films you see from a period that your mind automatically, like once you, you know, one like the first time you watch movies from the 30s, the the sound recording drives you nuts. You're like, why is everything so scratchy? It's just annoying, and then eventually, you just you don't notice it. 
Um, and you can just watch Marx Brothers movies. And the fact that the sound recording was very primitive back then, it doesn't bother you so much. But um, or, or you can look at you can look at a movie like The Thin Man, where uh, Nick Charles, Nick and Nora Charles, Nick, he's an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. He's drunk all the time in the movie, and but he's charming. But most of that movie, he's either completely drunk or slightly drunk, or he's always has a drink in his hand. Now, that was very funny and clever back then. You couldn't do that today. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, there was one time when Johnny Depp was supposed to do a remake of The Thin Man. And um, this was like two years ago or something. I guess it fell apart. The project fell apart. No doubt he was going to be an alcoholic. He was not going to be an alcoholic. I mean, they re- they remade Arthur and they changed him. They c- yeah. couldn't be an alcoholic in Arthur. He had to be like a man child or whatever. He had to be a man child with some slight substance abuse problems, but still, it didn't work. It didn't work, right? But Arthur was more recent. Arthur was a huge hit, a huge hit when it came out, the original film. Hmm. And he's a total lush throughout the entire movie. Was the Lost Weekend like sort of the first? That was one of the very few. Yeah, very few. It was Lost Weekend. There's a Spencer Tracy movie called People vs. O'Hara. Hmm. Uh, there's, of course, Days of Rhymes and Roses. Oh, yeah. Uh, but no, films that dealt seriously about alcohol, alcoholism were very far and few in between because it wasn't considered a problem. It was considered, you know, it's a joke. It's funny. It's seeing yeah. a funny guy trip over himself. It's funny. And, you, I mean, and, you know, so you have to, you have to watch it uh, with that in mind. Right. The, but it's like a heightened unreality. To, right. And, and going back to uh, 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 American in Paris. Right. If, without that musical number at the end, it's not much of a film. It's a film of moments. Right. There are some wonderful moments. Even that wonderful moment in the beginning of the movie when he wakes up and he's like mixing coffee and putting on the clothes and <laughs> straightening up the house. And it's all done in these single movements as if he's dancing. That's a wonderful little moment in the movie. Or like when Oscar Levant. Oh, I must yeah. tell you, I'm a huge fan of Oscar Levant. He's awesome huge in this. Fan. Yeah. Huge fan of Oscar Levant. When he has the fantasy of playing the Gershwin piano. Yeah, concert. that was awesome. You know, and but it's a film of moments. Story-wise, yeah, you're absolutely right. Let's do this ballet and let's come up with a story somehow that you know lead up to it. It's um, I, I love that the the uh, that his the little the fantasy he has is uh, I think um, <laughs> if not a if not a tribute then a ripoff. Being John bus- Malkovich. Oh no, <laughs> no, no, no! Of the Buster no, Keaton film. Oh yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the Playhouse. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Um, but uh, I, I like I like that about. It. But you know, I love the moment where he wakes up. I it's something I've actually observed, and I wondered uh, why this wasn't in any movies before I saw this in American in Paris. Which is once you live in a space for a long time and you get so accustomed to everything, you just you just reach out and you just open a drawer and you don't have to look at the drawer even. You just you can just reach, open the drawer, you can get the fork out of it, and it's all in like very swift movements. And it's because you just have muscle memory about where everything is located and. <laughs> I mean, I, I work as a cook, um, and in the kitchens I work, you know, it's all about, it's all about, mu- and, you know, I, I work as a cook, I make pizzas, and it's all about just the muscle memory of, okay, you pull this, you this, you flip the dough, you slide it in, slide it in the oven, you pull out the oven, and it's all, and when you're first doing it, it's very clumsy and awkward, and then eventually you just know where everything is, and you get a sense of it 
And yeah. it's it all like plays, driving. It's it like plays, driving a car, basically. Yeah, yeah, it all plays beautifully like music. I mean, yeah, driving a car is a crazy. If you break it down into the individual movements you have to make to make a car move, like it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's a crazy thing. But uh, it just it all comes together beautifully, and I love and I love that they trans they actually translated that into dance and music um, right. in this film. And then you, you, but going back to the ballet, the ballet at the end with a slight cut. Actually, I know the American in Paris. It always bothers me there's a slight cut in the work in order to fit it into the structure of the ballet. But it's an amazing sequence yeah. in terms of color and set design and movement and choreography. It just comes together as a whole. I mean, you can get a, you can you can take away the rest of the movie and just do the ballet and it still is a brilliant example of filmmaking. Just it absolutely is, brilliant. Mm-hmm. It is so overwhelming. I constantly when I'm well when I watch it and I watched I watched it before I watched the actual film proper. I just watched the ballet on YouTube. Um and uh, while watching it, I always lose myself, and I'm like, "Wait, how did we get here?" And it feels—I right. mean, a lot of it almost feels like it's all one take, um, though there are obviously clever cuts and stuff made. Um, but it feels so seamless, and it's so stream of consciousness, and it's so just dazzling that you're so overwhelmed by the color and the movement and the joy that you that you just forget where you are, and it's just like like and and that's what it is. It's a dream, and it the way it achieves that. Um, not by you know traditional dream standards, which is you know special effects or weird special effects or uh, surreal surrealism and stuff like that. It just achieves it through the emotion of a dream, the the sort of emotional continuity of a dream. Right, that uh, sense of longing for you know stardom. But I I think that even just when the movie opens and it has that playful narration. I was I was into it, but like I said, the 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 plot line is a little too loose for me to be like gung ho about it. Yeah, it's it's not much of a story. I right. guess why the bandwagon maybe it's, it's a I think it's a better musical. So I think it's a greater film. Hmm. It's, it's, it's I a agree. better story. And once again, it ends with a ballet, the girl hunt ballet. Um, but even the individual movements, I mean, individual sections in that film, the. The dance sequence that takes place in the dance mo- in um, Central Park between Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse, where they dance to Dancing in the Dark. They pass a group of people who are dancing, and then slowly she does a step, he does a step. You know, she does a movement, she does a turn, he does a turn. And before then, they're dancing together. And I've seen this in the theater. And there's a round of applause at the end because it's so magical and it's so moving and what happens is that there's an emotional content in that dance just two people dancing dancing in the dark that the audience can connect to I, I think I honest, if, I, if I had to and you don't have to choose I mean Vincent Minnelli made great Fred Astaire movies and he made great Gene Kelly movies so I don't you don't have you you know clearly don't have to choose but I almost feel that uh Fred Astaire's dancing style is more suited to G- to uh Vincent Minnelli's um kind of filmmaking style mm-hmm. where uh his cuz it's so graceful and um and Vincent Minnelli is is camera work is always point. so graceful That's a very good point. That's an excellent I, point. Right. I when I, I watch athletic. Yes, when mm-hmm. I watch Ziegfeld Follies it, I, the the strongest I mean I think it's one of the only times they were on screen together 
uh, Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire other than like I think one of the That's Entertainment movies. But uh, The Babbitt and the Bromide – uh, right. It's the first. It's really one of the only times in cinema history where you can see Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire dancing together, and it's. I mean, that's the point of the number is uh, is the sort of the differences in their styles and them trying to adapt to each other um, and stuff like that. But it's crazy just even how differently their bodies are. Like Gene Kelly is so athletic, he's so built, uh, and he's so muscular, and and whereas Fred Astaire is so long and and thin and graceful and. Um, so like you know Gene Kelly like he'll do some of the most craziest tap dancing sequences you've ever seen and then just the tap is incredible and and it, you know your jaw drops but also but then like Fred Astaire he can do some of the movements he does the more balletic stuff uh, it's really amazing I do agree I think I mean I I like American Paris I think Bandwagon's probably a little better um, and obviously you don't have, check. it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be either or but as far as um, the the if you're going to be diving into musicals, and I know a lot of people who listen to the podcast uh, the same way that we we make the podcast as a way of educating ourselves um, in all different parts of cinema. Um, I know a lot of our listeners are the same way, where they listen to this as sort of primers as to different kinds of cinema they want to watch. And if you want to get into musicals and you want to know like the two big the two big musical. A male musical stars uh, of of the you know the great musical era. It would be Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire. Watching the Bandwagon, and uh, I would say maybe even the Pirate is more suited to Gene Kelly than uh, American in Paris. Watching those two Vincent Minnelli movies are are sort of good introductions. Have you seen uh, Strike Up the Band, the Buzzy Berkeley movie? Because Minnelli was actually uh, <clears throat> directed to uh, do a a musical sequence performed by uh, Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney of all people. So I'm kind of curious to see that. Well, Mickey Rooney and right. Judy Garland did a lot of movies together. Oh yeah. Back when they were, when they were, they did sort of movies. Oh yeah. They, they were the famous team. Mm. Right. right. They, they a bunch yeah. of movies. And actually that was, that was very usual for MGM back at that time. They sure. would have directors come in and direct a sequence in a movie. I mean, because back then, if you were a studio director and you were assigned, they would say, okay, uh, this guy would direct the film, but Buzzy Berkeley will come in and direct the musical sequences. But then this one musical sequence Judy's going to do, we'll have Vincent direct that one. So sometimes you see a movie, and there could have been as many as three directors at one time. And, and I mean, even uh, when- directed sequences in the film, even though one gets credit. And, and even when we're talking about something like an American in Paris, I mean, when it's a musical and when it's such a big, you know, expensive musical like this, you know, all the credit can't go to Vincent Minnelli. Like Gene Kelly, the the choreography that he comes up with dictates so much about how the movie has to be directed. Gene Kelly is almost his own director on this work. And then the music itself is so important and dictates so much about the movie is going to be like the Gershwins can't be underestimated in sort of everything that makes an American in Paris Work and what makes that ballet at the end work so well is it's all of those elements coming. It's some of the greatest Gershwin music you've ever heard, and it's also some of the best Gene Kelly choreography you've ever seen, and it's also some of the best Vincent well, Minnelli directed. Well, with, with Fred Astaire, Fred Astaire had a very big say about how he was photographed uh, when he was dancing, and which is why I can't stand a lot of musicals, with so-called musicals today, because you know I want to see the body. You always see the body, always long shots. Means it. Let's see the body. Too many close-ups. Mm-hmm. Main reason why is because a lot of people they can't dance, so you gotta try to hide it someplace. Or they're too much influenced by MTV and a lot of the hyper overactive editing. 
But you look at those movies, you always see the entire body. You always see what they're doing. Every moment, you know, because it's not just your feet. It's also your hands, your legs, your torso. Everything you do, and you know, is dancing. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's choreography, and you got to see the whole package. And that's actually uh, now. I've not I've not watched these films, but that's actually some defenses I've seen of the Step Up movies. Uh, is that especially the later ones, as they get a little more elaborate, that they actually just have a lot of really great dancers, and they actually are good enough to pull the camera back and make sure you can see everyone dancing. Obviously, the dancing in a Step Up movie is way different than the dancing in, you know, American in Paris. But it's 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 nice. I also felt the same way about uh, I think uh, Craig Brewer's Footloose remake. It's it's not a great movie by any means, and the dance sequences aren't spectacular. But he definitely uh, knows enough to pull the camera back, and you see the whole bodies. And each dance moment in Footloose, the in the remake, has its own emotion to it, which is which I appreciate. Oh God, that's a director who can utilize music in film as you know a, an emotional release, and I think. I haven't seen the Footloose remake, remake, but I, I'm excited about everything that guy does just based on his other two movies. Um, I think we should move on because we got 20 minutes to talk about uh, some other films of his that we're really excited to discuss. And I think quickly, Patrick, since we both seen the same one that we're, I think we're equally excited to talk about, uh, some came running. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's- That's my review. <laughs> it's it's a it's a I don't know if it's a forgotten movie or if I'm just ignorant, but it was a movie that uh, I hadn't heard of. I mean, I know it was nominated for a lot of Oscars and stuff, but I don't know if its reputation has lasted. Um, I know no, that Richard. It's, 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 repu- its reputation has really grown over the years. Yeah, over the years, it's really grown. It must it must have because well, it's on DVD. I remember ten years ago I went to see the, the Gene Siskel Center and they had a faded print. I had to walk out. Oh. They showed it again. A few years later, it was a brand new restored print. Oh, interesting! So mm. it's it's been it's been its reputation, and I think it's mainly because of the French, the Europeans, have really. I, even though I think Home from the Hills a better movie that came out the year before, um, of of some came running, particularly the chase sequence oh. in the carnival, Brilliant. Uh, which is. Manelli at his most Manellianist, yeah, maybe you know. Certainly, and it's—I mean—there's an emotional uh, harshness that you do not expect uh, from a movie from the '50s. The alcohol again. This is a movie that deals with alcoholism, um, even mm-hmm. if it's not a quote-unquote issue kind of a movie, like you know, like Lost Weekend. It's it's definitely a movie about the adverse effects of alcoholism, and you know, uh, you know, Dean Martin's dying in the film because he he's an alcoholic. Yeah, uh, and his and, ugh, his and like absolute animosity towards Shirley MacLaine. Ugh. It is so Shirley MacLaine is so great yeah. <laughs> in in some came running because it is as written. I will even say the movie isn't as you know. It's still kind of regressive as far as it's definitely the there's the dynamic of you have the women in this movie are either dumb floozies or they're proper school teachers. And it's about, and it's about Frank Sinatra's sort of struggle in between the two. And, Mm -hmm. but what to, but to the movie's credit, um, the movie has so much empathy for Shirley MacLaine's character. And I mean, some that, that role in the hands of a less skilled actress, it could have just been a dumb, just a, a dumb blonde 
kind of, not that she's blonde in the movie, but you know, a dumb blonde kind of a character. But uh, there's such a longing for her. The the what it brought to mind is uh, Ellen Burstyn in King of Marvin Gardens. Ooh, uh, nice! Wow, you're good. You yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're good. They're, uh, good. They're, well, they, they're, they're two roles that uh, that hit me very in very similar ways, and mm-hmm. I mean it's a uh, it's it's certainly it seems to be Shirley MacLaine's lot in life as far or a lot in the uh, in the sixties and the fifties as far as uh, roles that she got where she was you know modern women who were sort of in a in a in a rut in a in a tough place because of their of sexuality. I mean, there's uh, obviously there's the apartment, there's Irma LaDuce and. Um, you know, and but she's so she's so good at not because uh, so many actresses you they have a thing where or it'll be they're dumb and they're silly for most scenes, and then they have their one big scene where they let loose, they show the emotional side, and then it goes back. Whereas she shows sort of the vulnerability and the emotional side in every scene, yeah, and she also shows her her character's naivete in every scene. This could also be Frank Sinatra's best performance. I mean, it could be. Yeah. Uh, man, I lo- I really like Man with the Golden Arm. Yeah, well, that too. I mm-hmm. think Some Came Running might be just as good. Um, since we have uh, a, a few moments left, I want to mention some other very quickly uh, Manelli films. Oh, please do. Um, one one is Long Long Trailer, which is the curdling of the American dream. It's a movie with Dad Fernandez <laughs> and Lucille Ball. And it's about a couple who, because of his job, he has to travel around the country. They buy this really big motor trailer, uh, home trailer. Oh, is it like Lost in America? <laughs> it's kind of the predecessor, funny. yeah. Extremely <laughs> funny, right? But it's really about the curling the American dream. Hmm. This couple who wants to be, like everybody else, wants to be successful and show what their wealth and their status, and it turns out to be a nightmare, an absolute nightmare that comes to the point of almost breaking up their marriage. There's a lot of very cruel satirical humor that goes on in this picture, aside from being, like I said, Lucy Arnaz and Des, uh, Lucy Ball Desi Arnaz movie. It's really funny. Manelli wrote, directed it very fast. They shot it in like less than a month, but really check it out. It's on DVD, and it's shown a lot on TCM. Another one is Tea and Sympathy, which is based on a Broadway play. I think this is Manelli's most personal movie. Um, uh, because Manelli was gay. He was a gay man. He was married four times. Uh, Judy Garland was his first wife. But, and he was a guy who, when he was in Chicago, New York, lived as a gay man. But when he came to Hollywood, they told him, you've got to suppress that. You've got to keep that quiet. Uh, so the Tea and Symphony is about uh, a, a boy, a college student, who is perceived as being gay. He's not, but he's perceived as being gay. And what happens is that this kindly older woman, played by Deborah Carr, who is um, who he's in love with, sleeps with him to prove to him that he's not gay. You know. And to keep him from being gay, right? She says the famous line, years from now, when you speak of this, please be kind. Huh. That's the famous line. Wow. But it's it's But it's a movie that really, I think, it deals with this conflict of sexuality. And I think that's something that Minnelli struggled with a lot when he was in Hollywood. Patrick, know? we're going to have to do a part two 
for sure. Right. Oh, yeah. And then, <laughs> no, no. And then, right, because Do uh, this and then movie. The, the other film I want to talk about very briefly is Four Mini Apocalypse. This is his last movie. I'm, let me phrase that. His last good film. <laughs> uh, it's got major problems, particularly with casting. Um, originally, he wanted Elaine Delon and Romy Schneider. Instead, he got Glenn Ford. But um, it's a movie that takes place in World War II. It's over two and a half hours long, and it's about the downfall of a family in France during World War II. One half of the family sides with the French, the other half sides with the Germans. At the end of the movie, uh, what happens, the final scene, Glenn Ford goes on a suicide mission that's going to re- result in the end of his life and his cousin's life, who's a Nazi. You know? mm-hmm. And when this whole thing is being blown up, I just want to talk about the final image. The final image we see are the four horsemen of the apocalypse nice. riding across the sky. You know, death, death, was it death, conquest, pestilence, and war. And that's the final image. And this huge, you know, musical, music cue comes in. And it's like, my God, what an image, you know, the four horsemen yeah. riding across the sky. You know, instead of, it's the, it's the extreme opposite of what you were talking about, that final scene in Meet Me in St. Louis, where the whole family is together watching um, the, uh, the International Fair. Mm-hmm. Here, the final image is of death and destruction, desolation and ruin. Damn. You know, and that's like, that was his last good film. He made some films after that. You know, like the Sandpiper and uh, on a long, yeah, on a long, a long day, you on a clear day, you can see forever. You know, but the last really good film, you check it out, is Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Uh, yeah, I think I think Jim, we're definitely going to have to do another Millennial episode where we yeah. just focus on his dramas mm-hmm. because um, yeah, I, I think we should because he did so many great Home from the Hill, The Cobweb, uh, um, Lust for Life is good. He loves for life. He yeah. has another one. He, he, the, the one show was not enough for Minnelli. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I do want to say, Jim, uh, you, you were, you, you were, your instincts were correct as far as long, long trailer being the precursor to Lost in America. Um, it is very good. I mean, it is. Yeah. It is interesting. Exactly. Now I want to watch it. Yeah, <laughs> for no, sure. You'll, you'll like you'll like long long trailer a lot. It's it's every bit as dark and satirical as uh, Lost in America. Nice. Um, and I I do want to say quickly, Bad and the Beautiful is a, a really great movie. Um, it's I, then you I, also should check out Two Weeks in Another Town. Yeah. Which what is, is the sort of sequel to Bad and the Beautiful? Mm, in a I way. didn't oh, know that's, that. That's right. I did. I did. I did. Uh, <laughs> I, I did read about that. I never saw it, but I read about it. Um, but uh, Bad and Beautiful, it's sort of again, like it's sort of a, a Citizen Kane kind of a structure, and it can't compare to Citizen Kane, which is not at all a knock against it. Um, it has Kirk Douglas being every bit as sort of uh, nasty and uh, ruthless as he is in Ace in the Hole. Um, it's. It's really uh, – it has – again, it, it's a black and white sort of a film and it shows that even in a more noir kind of a setting, Minnelli was just the master of images. There's a really, really great moment where they have sort of – as producers, they get – they're basically put in the Val Luton position where they're given the world's worst title for a horror movie, which is <laughs> called like Attack of the Cat Men, which is obviously <laughs> a play on cat people. And while they're trying to – and while he's uh, – while Kirk is sort of – 
talking with the director, um, what or uh, director slash screenwriter, what they're going to do about this movie. Uh, they go, wait, what? What they're trying to go back? What's basic human fears? And they and he turns out the light, and there's a great moment where the whole scene is just illuminated by this little table lamp, and and Kirk Douglas sort of drifts in and out of the shadows, and they have that aha moment, which was clearly uh, the. The, the screenwriter's tribute to Val Luton, who did the same thing with Cat People, um, and it's and it's a, it's one of the most striking strikingly shot scenes of of any movie I've seen, and it's and it but it's completely but again it's not Technicolor, it's not the it's not the lavish kind of cinema scope of the end of Some Came Running. Uh, Minnelli is so versatile. Uh, even I mean, if, if, if you know, Sergio mentioned the long, long trailer was shot really quickly. It's still just one of the greatest. It's one of the great screwball comedies. It's really, really funny. Um, and he he could do that. He could do a screwball comedy. He could do more serious work like Some Came Running. He could do a well, sort of like I said, in two weeks, two weeks in another town, which is which is in CinemaScope in Metro Color with Kirk Douglas, in which he plays an actor recovering from a nervous breakdown mm. who is brought to Italy to help director save a movie he's working on and um even there is a scene very similar it's an exact it's a copy of the scene in bad and the beautiful where kirk douglas is driving and while lana turner is going crazy similar scene in two weeks in another town hmm. where kirk douglas is driving at top speed while sid charise is losing her mind you know but this time in cinemascope yeah nice and but and but also it ends bitterly because uh, instead of Kirk Douglas screwing everybody in Bad and Beautiful this time in two weeks in another town at the end he gets screwed. <laughs> right. Um, it's an interesting film. It's not, and also it, Benelli wasn't happy with it because there were cuts made in the film. He was it was a much longer picture that he had made, but it's still worth watching. It's still very much worth watching. Well, I think this is going to be. A very difficult top three to do. One because I haven't seen as much as I want to, obviously, but it's going to be tough to pin it down to our top three Vincent Minnelli films. Um, I'm going to go with Meet Me at St. Louis. Some came running, and Lust for Life, which we'll probably talk about in part two. I'm sure. Uh, Sergio, what are your top three Minnelli films? I would say number one is Bandwagon. I love that film tremendously. Hmm. Bandwagon number two, a film I'll maybe next time I mention, is Home from the Hill with Robert Mitchum. Uh, two and a half hour sudden gothic story about family and how the secrets of the past can destroy a family. Really a great performance by Robert Mitchum. Nice. A really great performance by George Hamilton. You'll be surprised. A really great performance by him. And number three, oh gosh, number three. I would say, um, I, I would say Tea and Sympathy. It's totally unlike anything he did, but I think from a personal level, from a personal point of view, if you know Manelli's life and what he was communicating in that film, it's his most personal, his most honest picture. I would say that. Cool. cool. And uh, I, think, I think for me, number one would be Meet Me in St. Louis. Um, number two would probably be oh this is this is difficult yeah. I'm going to go ahead and say number two is The Bandwagon um, and number three would be The Bad and the Beautiful but I really really I do want to emphasize I think The Pirate is a very funny 
movie with some really great numbers by Cole Porter, um, who was once played by Kevin Klein. So there you yeah, go. You see, I'm telling you, you can't, you can't just cut it down to three yeah. films. I mean, yeah. you know, I could say top three musicals, the top three drama films. I mean, he's, that's, that show you the greatness of Manelli. You know, I mean, I'm telling you, he is um, still one of the greatest directors ever, ever. I, I I agree, and I've I've definitely grown in my appreciation for him since uh, doing research for this episode. And I am beginning to agree, so I'm, <laughs> yeah. I got a lot to catch up on. So oh, I'm yeah. excited. This is great. Well, Sergio, thanks so much for being on the show, man. It was great. Yeah, it, it was fun. I mean, I swear to God, two hours have gone by. Yeah, really, it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. We'll definitely have you back on next year for sure. Well, thank you so much. Thank you everybody for listening. Thank you for having me on, and uh, I'll talk to you guys next time. Okay, sounds good, man. Thanks a lot. Sure thing. So, Patrick. Yeah. Um, next episode is our big uh, 2013 spectacular. That's right. You know, I think it's a spooktacular, if I remember correctly. <laughs> <laughs> our end-of-year episodes are spooktaculars. Now, I know this is a little sad, but... It'll be the first time we don't do it in person, but I, I still hope you get drunk on your end. I will get drunk on my end if you get drunk on my end, and <laughs> we can we can video Skype. So, and I know part of the appeal is that we get to look at each other's naked bodies, mm-hmm. um, and we we'll we'll do Skype video for that one. Yeah. We won't we won't release a video podcast because that'd just be too much. Well, we should do I what the Cinecast used to do and just do the Google Hangout thing, and people can watch us on YouTube. I I I don't know about that. <laughs> Here's, here's what I don't like about doing things like that is if we record an episode and we put it out there, there's like plausible deniability. If people don't like it, we're like, whatever, it's already done. But if, if we do a Google Hangout and no one is watching it live, I'm going to be really bummed out. Yeah. You know, I want to I want to I, I don't want to open myself to that kind of failure. I'm too withdrawn. I'm too fragile, Jim. I'm I much too fragile. Um, but next episode is the end of the year episode. So here's what we want you all to do. Uh-oh. Send send us emails send us uh voicemails um jim do you have that voicemail number ready i probably should shouldn't I? okay go ahead get that voicemail number if you're gonna leave us a voicemail i will say um just uh no no longer than a minute uh because again the episode tends to go on forever uh as is but uh we want to we want to know about what you thought of the year you can do a top 10 list if you want if you want to just talk about your top 10 favorite performances of the year you can talk about your top 10 favorite moments of the year whatever you want whatever you want to do it's not it's not always necessarily about ranking all the films just send us something about the year in review because this is our big 2013 spectacular year in review um and we want you all to be there uh spook i i misspoke spooktacular <laughs> Please call us at 224-366-9528. That's good. That's you you didn't know you guys didn't know this but before we did this podcast Jim composed uh, jingles for local television commercials. Oh yeah. I just so, created an earworm. Yeah. I'm really excited. <laughs> I gave birth to an earworm. You can take any set of seven numbers and turn it into a catchy ditty. Mhm. Um, that's that's just that was what he he was the best in the biz at the phone number part uh, especially, but um so yes yeah, send us your messages if you're a past guest if you're a listener um, we want to hear from you um, so please send us your uh, messages to directorsclubpodcast at gmail dot com or that phone number that Jim just sang to you beautifully oh. um, also our phone number is on the website um, so you just go to directorsclubpodcast dot com and look at the show notes for any of our episodes uh, you'll see the phone number right there. 
Yeah, directorsclubpodcast.com. That's the place to be. Mm-hmm. Lots of um, things going on. Eh, not, not so much anymore. Oh, there will be. Maybe I'll, I'll, New Year's resolution for 2014 is I'll start blogging again. I'm going to start kind of, writing reviews every time I watch a new movie, at least, too. Like a theatrical? Yeah. I, 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 you have no idea how long I've been putting off wanting to write like an epic, long essay of upstream color. So Yeah. We'll I've actually – what I want to do is – and uh, this might be a bonus episode in the future. I want to do something about computer chess because um, that for me is one of the most interesting movies so of the year. I, um, I started watching that and I loved it but I fell asleep, yeah. which it was just because I was tired, not because I didn't love it. So I got to finish it and we'll definitely be talking about it, I'm sure. Oh, we're definitely going to be talking about that next episode. Yeah. Um, of course, you can find me at Patrick Paul on Twitter. Um, you can find my film, my film journal, which I also have not been keeping up with. But hey, 2014, new year, new opportunities to not fail. Mm-hmm. Cool. So that is at Martha Marcy Nash and Young dot WordPress dot com. Yeah, and Twitter, Instant Jim for me, uh, and uh, good old Letterbox, where you can catch all my star ratings in their infinite glory. <laughs> That's very exciting. When a new when a new gym star rating, the internet goes a buzz, it starts trending for a little bit on Twitter. It's really exciting. Yep. We're going to see uh yeah, it's going to be an interesting episode next week cuz uh if we catch up with everything, it'll be a miracle first of all. Uh I've already I've already seen more this year than I did last year. I've noticed, I, and that's really I cool. Think, I think last year I only saw like 24 movies total, mm-hmm. and this year I've already seen 30, and I'm I plan on spending the next two weeks on just gorging on a lot more. So yeah, because that's the best way to enjoy cinema is to not watch any of the new movies all year and then just shove a ton of them in your head at once. Right uh, <laughs> at the end of the year, that is definitely the best way to go about it. And luckily, on Christmas, I'm I'm seeing now that Wolf of Wall Street and Inside Lou and Davis will be in the area, so I can catch up with those next weekend. I'm excited. Yeah. My big my big problem is again, I just have no money to mm-hmm. see any movies in theaters. That's why you gotta. Well, I won't bring this up on the show, but you should sneak in once in a while. Oh, do it, do a triple Jim. feature. Jim, you're you're seducing me right now. <laughs> you're bringing me to the dark side. Are you saying I I I, I buy a ticket for one film, but then I mm. I see multiple films? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I like no where, I like where your mind's at, Jim. Yeah. Yeah, jerk off in the back of the theater. What? Wait, no, 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 said, no, no. Who said that? Mm-mm. It wasn't me. Okay, awesome. it wasn't you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks Jackie. everybody for listening to this incredibly good episode. That we was hope. Fun. Yeah, and the only episode where our guests hung up on us before. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was it was very much like you said uh, a call in. You know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it kind of cool. Old FM styles. And also, you know what? I bet most of our guests wish they could do that at the, during this portion of the episode. And obviously, I'm going to include links to where you can read Sergio's stuff. And you've got to check out his uh, radio show that he does monthly. That's really cool. Do you know the uh, where he sits a radio show in, on, in Chicago? Do you know happen to know the FM? What is that called? WHPK. What's the number? What is that number called? Channel? Is that called a De- frequency? Frequency. I th- uh, that's probably. You know, not it, right. it probably is a frequency technically, but you would think they'd have a, a more catchy name. Mm-hmm. Oh well, uh, we don't know anything. That's fine. We know some stuff about movies, so tune in next uh, couple <laughs> episodes, and hopefully, we'll tell you something good.
Oh man, we're gonna blow your mind with what's my number one. <laughs> uh oh. I'll give you forty three chances to guess what my number one movie of the year is. I'm guessing it's two guns. Yeah. <laughs> it's two I love two guns. It was alright. I'll keep ringing that bell. Two guns is so much fun. Alright. Join the two guns two guns oh my god. The two guns fan club Facebook page. I will, maybe. Yeah, you should. I, I remember I uh, I followed the uh, Facebook page for Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. <laughs> um, well, no, I, I did that because one of, the director of the film was from the Chud message boards. Oh, okay. He was, a, he was a Chud guy, and he met – or I don't know if he's on the message – he was on message boards a little bit. So I'm Facebook friends with him. Uh, Troy Nixie, really good guy, really great guy. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I was you know very trying to be supportive of the film. Um, but towards like about a year after that movie came out, there were still things posted on that Facebook page, but they were just not have anything to do with the movie. Oh God. At one point, like a year, this was maybe like, like five months after that it came out on DVD. There was just a post from, are you, don't be afraid of the dark that just said, do you believe in ghosts? (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I wonder like if we go back. Uh, to some of the movies uh, Facebook pages some of the movies from this year that came out earlier like say we go to the Facebook page for The Last Stand um, sometime next year what it will be doing Mm. oh boy we should buy them we should just get access to those and I could be I'm I'm Patrick Rapole I'm host of the Directors Club podcast and I maintain The Last Stand Facebook page and I just never let it end I constantly promote that movie I would do that for two guns. What studio released two guns? Is that Paramount? Uh, it feels like so. a Paramount. Yeah. I'm, it, Paramount, it fine. get in contact with me. I'm going uh, – two guns okay, – part of, part of why I love two guns is because it shares my extreme distrust and skepticism of all government agencies. <laughs> 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 Which is every government agency in that movie is just like a gang. Yeah. It's just like a bunch of competing mafia families. You know, this is the year where everybody. Well, I think it's been the last couple of years, really, but it's more more this year. This is like the year of everybody's falling in love with Matthew McConaughey. I think this is the year where you fell in love with Mark Wahlberg because you're like pain and gain and two guns. Yeah, that might be the case. Yeah. I mean, I like. Yeah, no, I, I. It's it's a it's been a weird year, man. Yeah, it has. We'll talk more about it next time. But until next time, I'm Patrick Rapole. And I'm Jim Laskowski. Saying, have, have a good Christmas. That's yeah, a fine way to end the show, right? And it's, yeah, it is. It's perfect because I'm ending it with. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year. On the first day of Christmas, my co-host got for me a crystal wicker basket from Kohl's. On the second day of Christmas, my co-host got for me two golden turnips and a crystal wicker basket from Kohl's. On the third day.
day at Christmas my co-host got for me Three skunk hats, two golden turnips And a crystal wicker basket from Coles On the fourth day of Christmas my co-host got for me Four naked grannies, three skunk hats, two golden turnips And a crystal wicker basket from Coles On the fifth day of Christmas my co-host got for me Five mustache hairs Naked grannies, three skunk hats, two golden turnips, and a crystal wicker basket from clothes. On the sixth day of Christmas, my co-host got for me six shades of lipstick, five mustache hairs, four naked grannies, three skunk hats, two golden turnips, and a crystal wicker basket from clothes. <laughs> On the seventh day of Christmas, my co-host got for me seven sexy snails. Shades of lipstick, five mustache hairs, four naked grannies, three skunk hats, two golden turnips, and a crystal wicker basket from Coles. On the eighth day of Christmas, my co-host got for me eight chugs of Zima, seven sexy snails, six shades of lipstick, five mustache hairs. It's true. Naked grannies, three skunk hats, two golden turnips, and a crystal wicker basket from Coles. On the ninth day of Christmas, my co-host got for me nine chopped off fingers, eight jugs of Vima, seven sexy snails, six shades of lipstick, five mustache hairs, four naked grannies, three skunk hats, two golden turnips, and a crystal wicker basket from Coles. On the tenth day of Christmas, my co-host got for me Ten Twiggy posters, nine chopped off fingers, eight jugs of Zima, seven sexy snails, Six shades of lipstick, five mustache hairs Ah, naked grannies, three skunk hats, two golden turnips, and a crystal wicker basket from Coles On the eleventh day of Christmas, my co-host got for me Ten prepaid cell phones, ten Twiggy posters, nine chopped off fingers, eight jugs of Zima, seven sexy snails, six shades of lipstick, five mustache hairs, four naked grannies, three skunk hats, two golden turnips, and a crystal wicker basket from Coles. Are you ready? Twelfth day of Christmas, my co-host got for me. Twelve Oxycontins, eleven prepaid cell phones, ten Twiggy posters, nine chopped off fingers, eight jugs of Zima, seven sexy snails, six sheets of lipstick, five mustache hairs, four naked grannies, three skunk hats, two golden turnips, and a crystal. Wh-